0: Hey everybody! Welcome to the Take on the World 22 Conference. We are live again with another debate. If you guys have been living under a Facebook rock over the last course of the last year, or even a little longer, um, there has been some new ideas in regards of eschatology. In regards, did the millennial reign already occur? And there's been a lot of different groups popping up all over the place. And tonight we are going to be debating whether did the millennial reign already occur or is that a future event that's going to happen when our Messiah returns. So we're, we have uh, two great guests. We have Matt Brandt, who's going to be debating on the side of it already did happen and we're living in the time of, a, of Satan being loose for a season. And we have Sean Griffin of Kingdom and Context talking about, nope, that is a future event and something that we will be looking forward to occurring and happening. So, guys, tonight, do not go anywhere. I want you guys to make sure you go in the uh, uh, the chat room or get this link to the YouTube uh, and send it out to all the people that you know because tonight's going to be absolutely amazing. But before we even get started into tonight's debate, I want to... To let everybody know, we have a bonus day. So the conference does not end today. It continues into tomorrow, Monday the 21st. We have a presentation from Michael Solomon. Uh, It's uh, Observations of Enclosed Cosmology. So if you watched him on the debate last night, he's going to be doing that full presentation. We have uh, Pieces in Plain Sight, Alien Invasion from the Enclosed Cosmology Fellowship Group. Uh, They're going to be doing a presentation there with Vader Bear. And then Sean Griffin is coming back tomorrow for the Investigating Babylon, the presentation. So if you've been a fan of the series, you're going to want to come back for a a two-and-a-half-hour presentation on Investigating Babylon. And then tomorrow night ends with a special sit-rep, the business of the kingdom. We got Aaron Sampson with guest Aaron uh, Ian Chadrick <clears throat> and some other guests as well. So guys, tomorrow's going to be awesome. And if you haven't checked out all the videos here at the conference, people have put their uh, hard work into presenting for you. So please do go give those a, um, a listen, go show them some love, go support their channels. And um, we totally appreciate everybody who's participated <laughs> in the virtual take on the world conference. So, We have an amazing debate tonight, and we're going to be starting off. Matt has elected to go first, and he's going to be doing his presentation on the millennial reign already occurring. Let me go ahead and set the timer, guys, and I will be chiming back in. Me and Sean will be muted throughout this presentation, unless if I need to come in for um, technical help, the floor is all his. Let me just go ahead and get this all set up. All right. Uh, Matt, you let me know when you are ready.
1: Let's go for it.
0: All right. Here we go. Ladies and gentlemen, here is Matt Brandt.
1: Hey, thank you, uh, Chris. And uh, it's an honor and a privilege to be here tonight. I appreciate the opportunity to be able to talk about this. I do want to say that my credentials are important here. I have none. I don't have any seminary history. I'm not a scholar in anything. Um, What I am going to present to you is something that I've come across over the past two years, which have been a a very turmoil-based time for me and my family. And so whether my stance is right or wrong, I'm going to present to you what I feel the Father has shown me. If he has not shown it to me, Uh, And I just made this up out of thin air. I pray that the Father rebuke me and correct me. And if it is correct, I pray that those that are hearing this will receive the message and understand the times that we're in. So first things first, uh, just to clear out some initial things. uh, I know that some people are under the impression that uh, Revelation was written in 90 AD. So how could it possibly Um, be in reference to the things that have happened uh, prior to that time. Um, Most of my opposition will probably believe that I believe in traditional preterism views, whether partial or full preterism, like um, it purely being a spiritual interpretation of revelation, which I do not stand behind that, Uh, that the Messiah returned in 70 AD. Um, I do not believe that either. Uh, all of which these things I'll explain uh, in the coming slides and such. Um, uh, the understanding that the day of the Lord is only a singular event. Every time it is mentioned, it's only referring to the Messiah's return. Um, it is not accurate for that to be the case. An example would be uh, in Isaiah. Uh, and I'm sure that Sean will bring some of these. Um, scriptures up at some point uh isaiah 13 uh verse 6 well for the day of the lord is near it will come like destruction uh, from the almighty scrolling down to uh later in that chapter um, and verse 17 look i am stirring up the meads against them who cannot be brought off with silver and who have no desire for gold their bowls will be cut down to pieces they will have no compassion on little ones they will not look with pity on children, and Babylon, the jewel of the kingdoms, the glory and the pride of the Chaldeans will be like Sodom and Gomorrah. At this time, this was a future prophecy. This uh, had no Persian concrete Babylon, which is obviously not the return of Christ. Although in Joel chapter two blow the horn in Zion, sound the alarm uh, my holy mountain, let all the residents of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming." And then there's a series of events that happen, which uh, supposedly did not happen during that time. However, if we go down to uh, later in that chapter, uh, after this, after these series of events that end up happening of this day of the Lord, I will pour out my spirit on all humanity, then your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your old men will have dreams and your young men will have visions. Peter quoted this and acts to have happened during the time of Pentecost. So this day of the Lord would have had to happen prior to that point. Uh, I don't believe that the Messiah returned prior to Pentecost. Um, And so therefore this day of the Lord is also not in reference to the Messiah's return. Just as a couple examples, I'm sure there are plenty others uh, in the Old Testament to uh, refer back to, but for the sake of time and getting through a lot of information, those are two examples there. Um, The Old Testament prophecies relating to the Messiah's return, or the speculation thereof, uh, is an interpretation based on teachings of other people and their interpretations of the Old Testament prophecies. There's a lot of those prophecies that were just conditional futures based on the obedience or disobedience of Judah and Israel. They were not actual prophecies of the millennial kingdom or the return of Christ. I believe that, uh, Daniel, the last few chapters of Daniel is the furthest prophecy in the future of all of the Old Testament, all of the other prophets and their prophecies were either relating to times of the future in that time period or conditional futures based on the obedience of Israel and Judah uh, and how they go about the instruction and the call to repentance based on prophets that were sent out. Um, uh, there's the opposition will also. Uh, suggest that there was only one war uh, of the nations against God, and the end. There's actually two, which we'll get into later. Um, I know that there's probably speculation of my misunderstanding of Scripture, and the based this basis is on the uh, assumption that the historical chronology is actually accurate, which I believe history has been tampered with just as much as science has. Um, and then lastly, um, I know that my stance is also categorized within the umbrella of Second Thessalonians 2 and 3. believing that, what I am sharing is a me- disturbing message that the day of the Lord has already happened. When Paul said that, of course, the day of the Lord, nor the Messiah's return, in context of that, has happened yet question is, is it impossible for that to be the case today? So we're going to start off and I'm going to mess up a whole bunch of technology today. So you guys will just have to bear with me a little bit. Um,
2: Almost there.
1: It's loading right now, apologies for this. Okay, so I'm gonna start with the end and come back to the beginning. So where we believe that we are right now is based on this little bit of a timeline right here. In Revelation 19, 19 through 21, um, there's the first war where the beasts and the kings of the earth and the armies war against Yeshua or Jesus, the Messiah. Then there's the beast and the false, false prophet that's thrown into the lake of fire and everyone is killed. Revelation 21 through 3, Satan is bound for a thousand years. The saints reign with Yeshua or Jesus for a thousand years. This is the first resurrection. Revelation 27 through 10, Satan is released after the thousand years to deceive the nations. Here we are. The deception period. After that, there's a second war. This is what I mentioned earlier. Satan and the nations prepare to battle. And the fire consumes them satan is thrown into the lake of fire then later we have the great white throne judgment and then the new creation of new jerusalem also uh, as a side note i'm sure this might pop up at some point as well the new jerusalem coming down and the messiah coming down <clears> or <throat> his return are two separate events as we can see here on this timeline So. Uh, first I want to start off In the two years that I was being shown this, or I believe I was being shown this, there was two main events that were happening. One was, I was trying to, I came, I was a Christian, still am a Christian. I was Christian for about eight years from, uh, 2011 till 2018. I came into the Torah movement around that time. Um, and for some years after that, uh, I had followed a very, uh, renowned Torah teacher who is very big in ancient Covenantry. It got me very interested in the same topic. And so I started, uh, started studying ancient Covenantry myself, um, uh, doing so <clears throat> I made it my mission to actually prove that the Sinai covenant was indeed renewed And that it was not the new covenant that we were in that is taught in the Christian church, and I I was actually trying to prove that the Sinai covenant wasn't renewed in the state that we see it written out, but the state that it would have been in had the golden calf debacle not happened. There are, outside of the context of this conversation, there is clear uh, indications that there were differences in what was added or changed to what the initial. Sinai Covenant would have been, but because of the golden calf issue, there were things that were added and changed in order to encapsulate the problems and the contention that was caused by that. That said, in my quest to prove the Sinai Covenant was indeed renewed, but into in the state that I was in prior to the golden calf, I ended up proving the renew or the new covenant, rather, which I'm going to show you. The reason that this is important is when we came out to Arkansas, where we're at now, from Florida, I was presented with the idea that the millennial kingdom already happened, which I disregarded immediately for weeks. I thought it was retarded. I was not going to believe in it. Uh, I didn't even want to think about it. And as I was sitting with my wife one day, I started considering, if this is true, then these things would have to take place. So second time, I was trying to prove something else. I was trying to disprove this millennial kingdom already happening and i ended up proving the opposite and that's what we're going to go through today so the first thing i want to go over is a form of ancient covenant the wedding covenant this covenant is an example of a dual ratification covenant okay as you can see in the beginning here you have the ketuvah. the ketuvah is a contract between the suitor and the father of the bride. This is the first ratification. It's a contract. They both sign it. There's transactional uh, uh, interests in there, and all kinds of stuff. They go through a betrothal period. After that point in time, and then at the wedding, there's an actual consummation uh, between the suitor and the bride, obviously. And then that is considered the second ratification. At that point, the marriage is official and completely active and then there's a 7-day feast afterwards. The reason this is this part is important is to illustrate a point of the Sinai covenant. It is likened to the Sinai covenant. In the way of being a suzerainty covenant. And I want to explain the suzerainty covenant first. The suzerainty covenant is another dual ratification covenant. Okay? It is a suzerain king which is a powerful and sovereign king and makes a covenant with a small kingdom or group of people. It is not a collaborative covenant. Okay. You're doing, it's not a given a take. Everybody makes up, you know, what they think should go in it. The suzerain king makes all the rules and the subjects, the people the kingdom agree to it. Okay. So here we have an example of uh, like a micro example. I'll go into this detail later. Uh, of- <laughs> That ratification process, as it relates to the suzerainty covenant, uh, and go into where is it the Sinai covenant. All right, the size Sinai covenant is a suzerainty covenant. God is an all powerful sovereign king, and He makes a covenant with a group of people. Here we have Exodus 20. uh, That's the beginning of the 10 commandments from Exodus 20 to 23 contain the 10 commandments or the 10 words. uh, And then uh, it's also considered the, the book of the covenants, essentially like the first portion of this covenant and Exodus 24 Happens to be the uh, first ratification process. So let me quickly pull this up. Um, and, and uh, chapter 24 of Exodus and Moses chat uh, verse 3 Moses came and told all the people all the commands of the Lord and all the ordinances so the commands the Ten Commandments and the ordinances those are the two pieces that are contained in the section then all the people responded with a single voice we will do everything uh, that the Lord has commanded Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord and he rose up the next morning set up an altar Uh, 12 pillars for the 12 tribes of Israel and the base of the mountain. He sent out a young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrifices of fellowship offerings to the Lord. That's part of a ratification process is sacrifices. Again, outside of the context of this uh, debate, there's two kinds of two main kinds of offerings, burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Fellowship offerings are always a shared offering. Amongst people, so there's always a feast as part of the ratification process. It goes on to talk about uh, how Moses takes the blood and where he sprinkled it, um, and we see this full first ratification process and end up happening. And then, so Moses arose with his assistant um, Joshua. Uh, the Lord says to Moses, "Come up to me on the mountain and stay there, so that I may give give you the stone tablets." This is verse twelve and the law and the commandments so he's going to go back up to get the stone tablets they have the parchment and he's going to get the stone tablets in reference to those first uh 10 words and ordinances and then he's going to get the rest of everything called the law and the commandments uh that he has written for their instruction so during this point in time over this period the law is written out there's a 40-year period where the law is written out the the covenant was not fully ratified in exodus 24 covenant law ancient covenant law states that once a covenant is fully ratified it cannot be modified or nullified Uh, Paul talks about this in Galatians, and we all know that uh, the Messiah talks about this in chapter five, not one jot or tittle will pass from the law until all is fulfilled. So both references to the fact that once a covenant is fully ratified, not one jot or tittle can change nothing. It is set in stone, as it were. However, during this 40-year period, there are things that are modified or added to over that period of time. Not going into a whole detail of this, again, for the sake of time. One example would be uh, Passover. The instructions for Passover were given in chapter 12 of Exodus. Um, in Numbers 9, uh, the people had complained to Moses, saying that if they're in clean or they're traveling, they want to be able to take part of Passover, but they can't. Then what do we do? Then God tells Moses that they are going to be a second month uh, the, uh, and the second month on the same exact day, they can have a make a Passover. That instruction did not exist in the beginning. It was added to it as somewhat of an addendum for the instruction to Passover. That cannot possibly have happened if the Sinai covenant was indeed fully ratified in Exodus 24. So moving on, the, the law is written out. Changes are happening. And, and Deuteronomy Uh, chapter 27 we have um let me pull it up real quick uh moses and the elders of israel commanded the people every command i give you today at the time you cross the jordan to the land uh the lord your god is giving you must set up large stones to cover them with plaster write all the words of this law on the stones after you cross into the land uh, the Lord your God has given you a land flowing with milk and honey as Yahweh, the God of your fathers, has promised you. When you've crossed over the Jordan, you are to set up these stones and mount the ball as I'm commanding you today. And you are to cover them with plaster, build an altar of stone there to the Lord your God. You must not use iron tool on them. Use uncut stones to build the altar of the Lord your God and burn offerings to the Lord your God on it. And there you are to sacrifice fellowship offerings and eat and rejoice in the presence of the Lord your God instructions for the second ratification part i almost identical to the first one written on stone it's a parchment with everything written on it burnt offerings and sacrifices eating and celebrating a feast two parts now we do see this come to fruition in joshua uh uh, which chapter is this chapter 8 um, verse 30 at that time joshua built an altar on mount and ball to the lord the god of israel just as moses said lord's servant had commanded the israelites he built it according to what was written in the book of the law of moses an altar of uncut stone on which no iron tool had been used They offered burnt offerings and sacrifices to the lord uh, and fellowship offerings uh there on these stones joshua copied all the law of moses which he had written in the presence of israelites all Israel foreigners and citizen-like uh, with their elders, officers, judges stood on either side of the ark of the Lord's covenant, facing the vitical priest who carried it as Moses, the Lord's servant, had commanded them. Half of them were in the front of uh, Mount Gerizim, the other half in front of Mount abal uh, to bless the people of Israel. Afterwards, Joshua read out uh, aloud all the words of the law, blessings as well as curses, according to all that was written in the book of the law. There was no word of all that Moses had commanded Joshua did not read before the entire assembly of Israel, including the women, children, foreigners. So we see everything that was written in on the law, spoken and written on stone, just like uh, the covenant portion, Exodus chapters 20 20, uh, through 23 were written on stone sacrifices offerings feast second ratification now everybody's still wondering what the heck and why am i talking about all of this is not relevant to where we're at in time there is a reason for this now we get up to uh where are we at winning
2: covenant i believe it's this one
1: Hopefully it is. Otherwise, we're going to have to keep reading whiteboard tips until I find it. Okay. Yeah. So, in this timeline, we have the Messiah's death, thirty-three A.D. Okay. It's also the first Chodesh, which is important, as I'll get later. Messiah's death was a fulfillment of Passover. My handwriting's way worse than my wife's, which is why she wrote all of this initially. So you'll just have to bear with me. That same year was also uh, the fulfillment of Pentecost or Shavuot, right? And this would mark, this is where all it's gonna come together, the first ratification of the new covenant. So at this point, the new covenant is starting, but it has not been completely and fully ratified. The Sinai covenant has begun the loss of its power, according to Hebrews 8.13. So you see here, it says, uh, when he said new covenant, he had made the old one or first one obsolete and that which is obsolete is fading away so at this point in time from here my wife right that me I actually need to move this over because this doesn't make any sense right here. Right there. Boom the new covenant starts and its first ratification. The Sinai covenant starts to fade out. These two covenants are coexisting at this period of time. Now, as I was testing the post millennial view, uh, a lot of these things came to mind as I was trying to understand it. So, we all know, without a doubt, in 70 AD, the destruction of the temple happened. It also started. And the uh, first Kodesh, which is, again, important later, Uh, the abomination of desolation took place, which is what I would argue that Daniel was talking about. And also the Messiah talks about in chapter 24, speaking to the people there. When you see the abomination of desolation, the end of the regular sacrifices, this marked the ending of the sacrificial system. That temple was destroyed. It was no more. Since then, there has not been sacrifices on that altar. Also, around this time, in 66 AD, was the beginning of a Roman Jew war. And it lasted until 73 AD, which coincidentally is a seven year period. One would call this the great tribulation period. And exactly, if you go back to Daniel, it talks about the 1290 days, the three and a half years after the abomination of desolation and the end of the regular sacrifice. It's three and a half years from the first Kodesh of 70 AD to the first Kodesh of 73 AD is three years, six months, a half a year after that point is the seventh Kodesh or month of 73 AD, which in turn gives us the potential fulfillment of the Messiah at the sound of a trump, fulfilling the Feast of Trumpets, also fulfilling the Day of Atonement. and then a feast period afterwards, which would be the Feast of Tabernacles or Sukkot. This marking the second ratification of the new covenant. The new covenant, second ratification here, and has now had power ever since, also marking the official ending and the complete fulfillment. As Messiah said, not one jot or tittle will pass from the law, from the Sinai covenant, until these things are fulfilled. This happens at this point in time. All of the feasts are fulfilled at this point in time. All the prophecies about this general time that actually apply to this general time have now been fulfilled. We also see the three great harvests being fulfilled. As we know, uh, there's a barley feast. There's the wheat, uh, sorry, the barley harvest, the uh, wheat harvest, and the grape harvest. Before Messiah's death, we have the barley harvest which included everybody that was previously in the Sinai covenant, which would have been uh, Judah, the Jews, would have been the lost tribes of Israel that the Messiah was uh, sent his disciples out to minister to. They were actually physically scattered in the north. They weren't just like completely unknown to anybody. They actually went out and shared the gospel and the good news of the kingdom to them. And then also the Samaritans, they were shared. So we know the Samaritans were half-breeds so they were the first harvest messiah ministered to them and sent his disciples to go to uh to minister to them during the period of uh 33 a.d onward to around this time was the harvest of the gentiles which would have been the wheat harvest Um, As it is uh, Britain and Luke, uh, they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive into all the nations and Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles. And this happens until the age of the Gentiles are fulfilled. The age of the Gentiles, and it's referenced a few times in the New Testament, is the period of time that... The new message or the the gospel, the good news goes out to the Gentiles, them being the second harvest. Then uh, last harvest is the grape harvest. We see in Revelation. Need to pull that up real quick. Uh, In Revelation... 14 i believe yep 14 then i look and there was a white cloud and the one like Simon, was seated on the cloud and the gold crescent stage sickle in his hand another angel came out of the sanctuary crying out in a loud voice uh, to the one who the one is on the cloud swung a sickle over the earth and the earth was harvested And the another angel who also had a sharp sickle came out from the sanctuary in heaven. Yet another angel who had authority over fire came from the altar and called out with a loud voice to the one who had a sharp sickle. Use your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vineyard because its grapes have ripened. So the angel swung the sickle towards the earth, gathered the grapes from the earth's vineyard, and he threw them into the great wine press of God's wrath. Then the press was trampled outside the city. Blood flowed out to the press of the horses bridles for about 180 miles. We also see in, uh, Revelation 19, uh, I lost my spot. Okay. Uh, Am I running out of time?
0: Yeah. So that's, that's, that's time there. Um, let me bring Sean in here really quick and, do you need a few more minutes to make your full point on your first on this first presentation?
1: Uh, probably just like two minutes. I can wrap it up real quick.
0: Okay, let's go ahead and we'll do that. We'll give them two minutes here.
1: Okay. So uh, now I got to find my. Uh, so we have the full fulfillment and the second ratification process of the grape harvest happening during this time. Coincidentally, these two ratification time points are exactly also 40 years identical to the ratification time period to the dual ratification process of the Sinai Covenant. I'll go ahead and have it, uh, hand it over to Sean. Some of the other things I can go over will probably be brought up in subsequent conversation.
0: Yep. So, yeah, you've got your rebuttal time coming in um, and then you'll have your counter rebuttals of that. And then we'll obviously get some Q&A. Uh, stick with us throughout the, uh, the whole presentation, guys, because we will be able to take some Q&A from you guys at the very end uh, after they ask each other questions. So uh, we're going to go ahead and uh, set the clock here uh, for Sean's 30 minute uh, presentation. And and then we will go right into uh, our rebuttal time. Um, from Matt will be first. Okay, Sean, uh, let me know when you are ready, and we'll go ahead and get this started. I'm ready. Okay, let me go ahead and drop us out of the. Okay, I'll stay here one one quick second. Right when I drop out, you begin.
3: All right. Thanks for having me, Chris and Liz. I appreciate you guys putting on the conference. I'm Sean Griffin from Kingdom in Context. And uh, as you can probably discern from the name of our channel, we talk about the kingdom of God a lot. And so I'm, I'm honored that I get a chance to uh, actually speak on the kingdom of God and the message, the good news of the coming kingdom of God, because it is good news that the whole world can hope in, and it'll change the reality of the world forever. And so I'm excited to explain the details of that because they are not taught in many, many churches, as well as many Torah-based communities, as we heard our brother Matt uh, explain how he came to some of his views, some of the thoughts that he was trying to express just now uh, he'd learned from a Torah-based teaching. And so we also teach God's instructions. His Torah are applicable for believers in Christ Jesus as a part of our discipleship. And that is just the process of sanctification during this life before we get to the promise of John 3 16, the promise of the resurrection where we're brought into the kingdom. So I'm excited to explain the four qualifiers of the kingdom on earth and how we know it just has not happened yet. Worldwide resurrection of the saints. The na- the nations will gather at the kingdom. The occult is no more. And the description of the new Jerusalem itself So if we look at the worldwide resurrection of the saints and what what would that look like? John 11, 21 through 24, we have a conversation with Lazarus dies. Lazarus' sister, Mary, excuse me, Martha is there. They call for Yeshua to show up. Yeshua does show up after four days. And this conversation begins with Martha, who's mourning the death of her brother, Lazarus. She says, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you've been here, my brother would have not died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask of him. Your brother will rise again, Jesus told her. Martha replied, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. So he's not, she's not thinking that Yeshua is going to actually raise him back to his fleshly life, right? His mortal life. She thinks, well, I know the promise of the covenant, which is the resurrection. And I will see him resurrected on the last day. This was the fundamental understanding of everyone in ancient Israel, because it is the fundamental promise of the covenant. Even someone as like Martha, not a scholar, not a rabbi, not trained in the law, knew the very basic promise of the covenant. Yeshua affirms that knowledge to her in the fullness of the context of that conversation where he explains to her he is the resurrection of the dead and those who believe in him. Even though they may die, they will live again, right? They will not face the second death. They get that promised resurrection. We also see in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul goes into great depth to try to explain the process and the descriptors of the resurrection as well as the timing. We're going to go over some of that here. In 1 Corinthians 15, 22 through 23, Paul says, Then at his coming, speaking of Christ, then at his coming, those who belong to him will also be raised from the dead. So Christ is indeed raised from the dead. He's considered the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So just as an Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, each in his own turn. So that means there's, a, there's an appointed time. There's a term for when things happen on God's schedule. And a part of that is Christ was the first fruits. He, in the heart of the earth, three days, three nights, resurrected to his glorified immortal body that is promised of the covenant. He then ascends to his position of priesthood in the heavenly tabernacle to minister for us on our behalf. And then at his coming, just as in Acts chapter 1, the angels telling the disciples, staring up into the clouds where they saw Yeshua ascend, the angels said, in the same way you saw him ascend, so you'll see him come back again. So at his coming, which is commonly referred to as the second coming in most Christian churches, this is when the resurrection of the saints Not the first fruit, he's the first fruit, but the rest of the harvest is brought in and glorified, quickened, as some of the older languages used in the old KJV. Uh, Also, it's used in many translations in Romans chapter 8. It's a different type of resurrection than what we see happen, for example, with Lazarus in John chapter 11. That is being resurrected back to your mortal body, but the great resurrection worldwide of all the saints. From Adam until the second coming of Christ, that's something called a quickening. That is a changing in the twinkling of an eye. That's when the believer gets a resurrected and glorified body, as Paul expounds in Romans chapter 8, 11 through 19. First Thessalonians 4, here's another qualifier of a worldwide resurrection and what we can be confident to know when we see this thing happen. And it is not only that Jesus died and rose again, we also believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep with him. Now, this is where a lot of churches don't read the rest of this passage, and they think, oh, well, then you when you die, all the saints must be in heaven, and then they come back with him. But that's not what the scriptures say. It's warrior angels that come back with him to fight Armageddon, to fight the beast, the second beast, the kingdoms of the earth on the day of Armageddon, the battle of the Lord. Who, why, how can this description be saying, oh, that his saints, those who have fallen asleep with him, will be coming back with him? Bring Jesus, bring those with him. He goes on to clarify, and there's a lot of descriptors in the prophets that do clarify the process of the worldwide resurrection, which Yeshua referred to in Matthew 13:30 as the wheat being gathered into the barn. The barn has a location, we're gonna discuss that. The wheat is the, the resurrected saints being taken to that location. And this is why this passage says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven, that's from above coming down, with a loud command in the voice of an archangel with the trumpet of God. So there's a qu- huge qualifier. There's a massive trumpet of God that blows the dead in Christ are the first to rise. After that, we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with the dead in Christ that have already risen, with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. How will we meet the Lord in the air? It's because he's directly descending on that time to do business, but we don't stay. There's no special convention happening in the air. We're being taken to the new Jerusalem that has yet to descend He's coming down with warrior angels to take care of the wicked kings of the earth, the first beast, the second beast, and the dragon. This is how we are raised from the dirt, Isaiah 26, 19, taken to the barn, Isaiah 26, 20, to, to miss and to avoid the, the indignation of the Lord. This is the fulfillment of the Passover. The wrath of the sun on the nations passes over those who are freshly resurrected. It is the promise of the covenant. Revelation 11, 15-18 is another qualifier of this trumpet that we just saw Paul mention, and it is the last trumpet. It's the seventh angel sounded his trumpet. Revelation 11, 15, loud voices called out in heaven, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. So two entities mentioned there, because a lot of people forget the Father is coming back with the Son. And he will reign forever and ever, forever and ever. For I want to stress that throughout this uh this debate here, that he will reign forever and ever. He will reign forever and ever. Yes, you can have mutinies and rebellions within a kingdom, and the king does not lose his authority, does not lose his reign. Yeshua and the Father from the New Jerusalem during the millennial reign will reign forever and ever. At the 24 elders who sit on the throne before God, they fell on their faces. They worshiped God, saying, we give thanks to you, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and was. Because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. So there's a qualifier. They have begun to reign at this last trumpet, this seventh trumpet. And they say that the nations were enraged because your wrath has come. The time has come to judge the dead and to reward your servants, the prophets, those the resurrected, as well as the saints and those who fear, name both small and great. Hallelujah and amen. This is the promised worldwide resurrection of all the saints from Adam to the day he returns. First Corinthians 15, 51 through 54, Paul reiterates about the trumpet being blown and how the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. He then goes on to further clarify the descriptor to say when the perishable, here's a time qualifier, when the perishable has been clothed with imperishable and the mortal with immortality. That means when you get your new resurrected immortal body then the saying is written will come to pass, death has been swallowed up in victory. So right now we proleptically, we in faith, we believe death has been swallowed up in victory. Yeshua is going to fulfill all the promises of the covenant, but the world will be able to actually say this saying has come to pass when the great resurrection happens. And I'm going to show to you real quick here in some of our following points, how we absolutely see the qualifiers that the nations will know the world has or the saints have been resurrected and are living inside the kingdom. It's a testament to the actual nations who didn't make the resurrection. So let's uh, keep going here in 2nd, Ezra 2. Therefore, I say to you, you unbeliever, and this is one of those testaments that's prophesied, high priest Ezra, 6th century BC, one of the gentlemen responsible for the Bible we have today because the father commissioned him to restore all the scrolls of the scriptures of ancient Israel. He clarifies, he prophesies the nations. He says to them, oh, say unto you, unbeliever, some translations in older english say heathen that hear and understand look for your shepherd he shall give you everlasting rest guys the messiah is not just promised to the faithful saints his disciples he's also promised rep as a as a source of refuge for the nations paul repeats this in first and uh romans chapter 15 as he's repeating isaiah 42 for he is close at hand that shall come in the end of the world time qualifier be ready to the reward of the kingdom boom speaking to the unbelievers they actually get to experience the benefits of the kingdom on earth as well for the everlasting light there's no sun or moon inside the kingdom as we're going to read from revelation 21 later because the nations can actually walk in its light yes the sun and moon are still going to be in the sky but the kingdom itself emanates its own light it's called the glory of god It's an everlasting light will shine upon you forevermore. The you, the subject matter in this passage are the nations, not even believers. Receive the joyfulness of your glory. I testify openly to my Savior. He goes on to say, receive the gift, speaking still to the unbelieving nations. Receive the gift that is given to you. Be glad, give thanks unto him that has led you to the heavenly kingdom. Yes, the nations will be drawn to the heavenly kingdom. We're going to go over that behold the number, and here's where they will actually see the number of those that are sealed in the feast of the Lord, those who are ready to partake in the actual Passover meals inside the kingdom, those who have been resurrected. And it clarifies this group that unbelievers are witnessing and beholding the number of by saying, these are they who've departed from the shadow of the world and have received glorious garments of the Lord. All qualifiers Worldwide resurrection witnessed by the nations. The nations then will see them inside the new Jerusalem. Part two, the nations do gather at the kingdom. Matthew 25, 31 through 32 directly tells you when the son of man comes in his glory, all the nations, all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him. You can't do that if the new Jerusalem hasn't descended yet. His throne is in the new Jerusalem. It's testified and, t- and all the way back to Daniel to first Enoch chapter 25. It, it in, in memoriam, since there were prophets, they've been prophesying about the idea of Yeshua's throne being on the earth as the Son of Man ruling in the Father's authority. That throne is on the earth. All the nations are drawn before him, and he separates the sheep from the goats. Micah chapter four, one through two. In the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. That means the point of authority. And literally, it goes on to explain, it's raised above the hills, and the peoples will stream to it. The nations will come to it. The resurrected saints inherit the the mountain, the house of God. They live inside of it. The peoples that stream to it are the nations, and it clarifies this. And many nations will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways. That's his Torah. So that we may walk in his paths. That's his Torah. For the, Lord, for the law, for the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Amen and Hallelujah. And we're gonna we're gonna read some verses about the nations gathering, having to do the law here in just a few minutes. So this is a huge qualifier. Throughout all of history, no recorded history ever shows a time of peace on the earth. Um, I, I unfortunately I feel like our brother maybe didn't quite get to all of his points in in the first part of this debate because I didn't actually hear any point where he tried to. Um, explain the idea of when the millennial reign actually happened in the last 2,000 years and where it went and, and why there's no record from anybody, no matter how sophisticated or barbaric, there's no savages, there's no record of anyone in the last 2,000 years saying that there was a, as a time of absolute peace on the earth uh, where nations didn't war and people went to this amazing house of God that was raised above the hills that they could learn from the creator and his son and see and witness the amount of resurrected saints that are inside of there. So there's a lot of qualifiers that just do not hold water with this theory, in my opinion. Micah chapter 4, verse 3, Then he, that's Yeshua, will judge between many peoples and arbitrate for strong nations far and wide. This is not a regional thing. When Yeshua returns, the kingdom comes. He's judge and king over the kingdom, which has authority over all the nations in the earth. They will all come to him as the ultimate judge and high priest. Matthew chapter 5, Yeshua tells us the Father is not going to judge anyone. He gives all judgment to the Son. And it says the nations will no longer take up the sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. We could ha- we literally, archaeology and anthropology, can find weapons of warfare dating back for hundreds, if not thousands of years in the most recent modernity of history. So it's hard for me, even if we question modern European archaeology or science, because we see a few things that don't make sense. There are other nations like the Indians and the Chinese, as well as the Native Americans who have written records and oral traditions that they can trace their family lineage back four or five thousand, four or five hundred years. Even with the Chinese, as far as four thousand years, they have written documented records that have not been tampered with by Illuminati bloodlines of the of the um, European nations. So there, there is a large testament all across the world to an amazing amount of history. Um, I mean, if we want to go even with just the, the Ethiopians whom literally consider themselves as, to be remnants of ancient Israel that's scattered, whom have traced their lineage because they still have Levite priests to this day ministering in a priesthood in Ethiopia unto Yahweh. They have to follow their lineage and they've kept that up this whole time. So there's, there's a lot of, uh observable evidence we see across the planet of the earth that these types of prophecies have not actually happened yet ezekiel 37 27 through 28 my dwelling place will be with them this is very very important guys the house the tabernacle of yahweh himself the father and son's house will come down to the earth it is the promise of the good news of the kingdom of god that yeshua preached everywhere he went all of the prophets preached it in the old testament the dwelling place of Yahweh will be down on the earth. I will be their God. They'll be my people. Then the nations will know. The nations, not just believers. We already know at the resurrection because you're resurrected and you're glorified and you get to go hang out with Yeshua and the father the angels in their house. The nations will then know that the Lord sanctifies Israel when his sanctuary is among them forever. Forever, I stress the part forever. Revelation 21, two through four. I saw the holy city of the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. We got qualifiers, a city, Called the new Jerusalem, coming down from the firmament, out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Look, it says, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. The dwelling place of God is with man. In verse 24, 26 of the same passage, the nations walk in its light and in the kings of the earth bring their glory. That's their wealth, guys. The nations centralize their wealth into the kingdom under Yeshua's authority when when the kingdom comes. Into the city will be brought the glory and honor of the nations. This is also spoken about prophesied in Isaiah chapter 60, verse two through five. Behold, the darkness covers the earth. The thick darkness is over the peoples. The Lord will rise upon you. His glory will appear over you. Nations will come to your light. Why? Because like Revelation 21 says, no sun and moon in southern Jerusalem. It is illuminated with the glory of God. It, It emanates light on its own. The nations will come to your light. To the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look around. They all gather to you. Your sons will come from afar. It goes on to say, Because the riches of the sea will be brought to you, the wealth of the nations will come to you. This has never happened in all of recorded history. The multitude of wealth is still spread out amongst all the nations, much of it hidden in vaults and underground containers. Zechariah fourteen sixteen through 19, the nations will come to the New Jerusalem, to the kingdom. All the survivors from the nations that come against Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. Because the Feast of Tabernacles is an eternal ordinance. Just as the kingdom of God is promised once it settles down on the earth, it's to be here eternally, so are the feasts that are held within it. And then there's actual punishment brought upon the nations who refuse to obey coming up for the Feast of Tabernacles. Revelation 22, 3-5, through five, more description of the city, the throne of God and of the Lamb, that's two separate entities, will be within the city. For the Lord God will shine on them, and they will reign forever and ever. The Lord God and the Father, the Lord, the Lamb, and the Father will reign forever and ever. Can I stress that one more time? Forever and ever. Another big point we want to keep in mind is the occult is no more once the kingdom is here. So the world right now, the occult means hidden. Right now, the secret societies of the earth, the the hidden kings of the earth that rule over the nations in shadow in many places, they worship and hierarchy of gods from ancient days and this is well established all the all the all the typology all the symbolism all the reverence in all of the secret societies that bleeds into more modern day governmental policies that they've literally announced they want to move the the nations of the world back into what we see in history from worship and idolatry to these false gods in the past the, this, the trinity that ruled all the nations was the same trinity, and yet they were called by different names because of the languages that changed at the Tower of Babel. The head of that pantheon was always the dragon. That was the Greeks referred to as Zeus. The Egyptians referred to as Ra. The Indians referred to him as Brahma. Second in that pantheon was what we consider the first beast of Revelation. It's the Apollo to the Greeks, Osiris to the Egyptians, Shiva to the, to the Indians. The second beast, as mentioned in Revelation as well, he's also mentioned in Jeremiah 35. Hades to the Greeks, sometimes also called Hermes to the Greeks as well. Anubis to the Egyptians and Vishnu to the Indians. Ra, Osiris, and Anubis, what was called the Theban Triad, was also admonished, worshipped, and revered as the top pantheon trinity within the Akkadians, Mesopotamians, the Canaanites, the Greeks, the Indians, the Chinese. It is the head of the occult. And as we see, this is a depiction from ancient India. This is what we see outlined as coming back to a central source of power before the second coming of the Messiah outlined in Revelation and other passages. Revelation 13, 4 through 6, they worship the dragon. Who? The nations of the earth. They worship the dragon who had given authority to the beast. So we have a qualifier here of a timing. The beast who got his authority from the dragon is also being worshiped, and he is given a mouth to speak arrogant blasphemous words and act for 42 months. And the beast opened its mouth to speak blasphemies against God and slander his name and his tabernacle and those who dwell in heaven. Why would he need to do that if the kingdom has already come down? You don't slander something that's in heaven if the kingdom's already down. So again, I, and I know it depends on, we didn't get to hear an exact timeline of what our brother believes as far as when the, the, revela- the events of Revelation fully took place. He claimed he was not um, a what most preterists and partial preterists stand to, which is considered a. They, they think eighty seventy was a fulfillment of all of Revelation. So I hopefully at some other point in the debate we can hear him clarify exactly and when he thinks some of these things took place, because the, the descriptors of who are the people being mentioned in Revelation thirteen, who they were in history, and what their outcome is and their judgment, we've never seen. But it because the the earth is still worshiping the occult. So Revelation 13, 7-8, the second beast permitted to wage war, excuse me, the first beast permitted to wage war against the saints and to conquer them, and it was given authority over every tribe and people, tongue, and nation. There are saints being persecuted today, but this is not the description of when the Satan is let out in Revelation twenty seven through 10 This is a description of what takes place before the Messiah returns. So the very fact that I, I believe the, the greater majority of persecution will happen within the 42 months that we just read about, leading up to the Messiah coming back and stopping him. But yes, there's been ongoing persistent persecution of the saints for over 2,000 years. That is not the description of when Satan is let out after the millennial reign. Revelation 13, 11 through 2, it introduces the second beast who causes people to worship the first beast. The kings of the earth, as Revelation 17, 7 and 8 says, already are worshiping the first beast. Same with Revelation 13, four through six. They're already worshiping the first beast. It's in all of their iconography, it's in their stated written beliefs. It is the, the head pantheon of all the occult practices, as well as secret societies. The hierarchy of Revelation 13 outlined in scripture and is consistent all the way back to the days of the Tower of Babel the dragon, Satan, the first beast, Apollyon, the second beast, Hermes. The dragon went by many names. Including Zeus, Ra, Brahma, Enki, Quetzalcoatl, Odin, and Zazel. The first beast went by many names: Apollo, Osiris, Shiva, Hammurabi, Bel, or Nimrod. The second beast went by many names: Herbie, Hermes, Hades, Anubis, Vishnu, and Kidu, Nergal Era. And I don't know the Israeli name for him. Daniel chapter seven, we see a, ver- a validation of Revelation thirteen, talking about the ruler of the of the final kingdom, which is that first beast, given authority from the dragon to go persecute the saints. We see that again, or I should say for the first time, maybe spoken with Daniel in his prophecy in Daniel 7, 26 through 27. He speaks out against the Most High, oppresses the saints of the Most High, trying to change appointed times and laws. The saints will be given into his hand for a time, times and half a time. His dominion will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. So if the millennial reign has come at any point in the last 2,000 years, it's come and gone. Why are they still worshiping the beast? Because the prophecy about the fourth kingdom and the first beast is that once he is here and he does his dastardly work, Messiah stops him and is his dominion is taken away and completely destroyed forever, forever, forever. It doesn't come back. It's forever. The sovereignty, dominion, and greatness of the kingdoms under all of the heaven will be given to the people, the saints of the Most High, who are led by their shepherd, Yeshua. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will serve and obey him. All rulers on the earth do not serve and obey God. Today, I know that's part of the general premise of Matt's argument, is that Satan's been led out to deceive the the, uh, people of the earth, and that's why people reject him and don't serve but there's a lot of issues with that as far as the qualifiers of what happens when the kingdom gets here as because it never leaves once it's here. Revelation 19, 19 through 20. Here's the end result of the false first and second beast. This is why Satan's only let out. After, he's the only one still of the of the of this evil trinity, if you will. Satan is the only one that is locked in a hole for a thousand years. And he's not actually let out. First and second beast are thrown in the lake of fire and destroyed at the second coming of the Messiah, as well as all of the unclean spirits. And this is something I think a lot of people don't teach on is that the unclean spirits, which are considered the hosts of Azazel, they're also thrown into complete the abyss of complete condemnation as Enoch prophesied in Enoch 54. Michael, Gabriel, uh, Raphael, and Fanuel take hold of them on that great day and cast them in on that day in the burning furnace. The Lord's spirits may take vengeance on them for their unrighteousness and becoming subject to Satan and leading astray those who dwell on the earth. This is the descriptor of the unclean spirits. As outlined in Jubilees 10, a tenth of the unclean spirits, which are the disembodied Nephilim from before the flood, were put into the subjective control of Satan after the flood. The occult is no more. The first, second beast and the unclean spirits are all destroyed in the lake of fire at the second coming, at the beginning of the millennial reign. Only the dragon is locked away temporarily for a thousand years. Now let's quickly look at the, some descriptors in the last two, three minutes of the new Jerusalem itself will not be missed. Once it's here on the earth, it's never going away. And the descriptors of it itself, you won't miss it. Never, You'd never have an opportunity to miss it, I promise. Genesis 13, 14 through 15, and also Genesis 15, 18 through 21 is the covenant that is promised to all of Israel, but also reaffirmed and promised to Abraham in this moment that if he would follow Yahweh, which he's commended for in Genesis 26, 5, all he, Abraham was faithful in all the statutes, ordinance, commandments, and Torahs of Yahweh, that he would get he and his offspring to live in this land that was shown to him forever that assumes the resurrection. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. Also, again, repeated in Genesis 15, Genesis 17, Genesis 18, Genesis 22, Genesis 26. The land between the, the Euphrates and the Nile, given to Abraham and his descendants forever. This is also repeated a multitude of times in the book of Jubilees. Hebrews chapter 11, 8 through 10 is repeated again. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place, he would later receive as his inheritance. By faith, he's called to go to a place he would later receive, not during his lifetime. He would later receive because he's promised resurrection as a part of the covenant. For he was looking forward to the city which, with foundations whose architect and builder was God. That is not the ancient Jebusite city of Jerusalem that David took over and finally made the capital city of the southern kingdom. That is not any ground-based, earth-based city. The millennial reign is not a rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem that's on the earth today. It's a building whose architect and builder is God himself. It's paradise made with the hands of God, not with the hands of men. uh, Hebrews 11, 14 through 16. Instead, they're looking for a better country, a heavenly one. This is not an earthly one. They knew the promise. And, And by just this point in Hebrews 11, it's more than just Abraham being mentioned. It's Enoch, it's Isaac, it's Rebecca, it's Jacob, They all knew the promise of the covenant. This promise of the covenant was not originated at Mount Sinai. The promise of the covenant was all the way back to Adam. That's emphatically spoken throughout the scriptures, Galatians, Hebrews, Jubilees, Enoch. um, Yes, also in Enoch, Genesis. It's everywhere. It's the promise that you obey Yahweh, you get resurrected, and you get to live in his house. It's the good news of the kingdom. It's always been there because it says very clearly in Hebrews 11, God is not ashamed to be their God. He has prepared for them a city. How beautiful. Revelation 21, 9-11, we get a quick description of this city. The New Jerusalem, which comes down, that's a directional qualifier, comes down out of heaven, shining with the glory of God. And Paul explains, before it comes down, where it is, it's, it's up. That's why it has to come down. Second Corinthians 12, he talks about a man he knew that was caught up to paradise. Revelation 2, Yeshua calls the place with the tree of life, the saints inherit the paradise of God. Revelation 21, 15-17, we get some measurements for the great kingdom. That's coming. It's massive, over, over uh, 1,400 miles tall, length and width. Here's a quick overlay on the United States. Massive, massive land area. Not only is it going to be here forever, you'll never miss it once it's here. Massive land area. All the nations are drawn to it. The resurrected saints live inside of it. This is here overlaid onto the overall area in the Middle East and, and where it possibly could set. The New Jerusalem is 271 times taller than Mount Everest. You'll see it from everywhere you are on the plane of the earth once it's here, and it'll never go away. Isaiah 33, 20 says, Look upon the city, look upon Zion, the city of our appointed feasts. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, a peaceful pasture, a tent that does not wander, its tent pegs will not be pulled up, nor will any of its cords be broken. Long story short, it's never going away once it's here, once it's established on the earth. It's never ever going away. This is why Yeshua says in Ezekiel 37: it's his dwelling place, his sanctuary that's among mankind forever forever revelation 20 the broad plane of the earth when satan's let out he goes into deceives people and the, they're like numbers of sand on the seashore they march across the broad plain of the earth surround the camp of the saints in the beloved city well that beloved city is the new jerusalem so the king in the new jerusalem never lost its power or authority over the nations of the earth it just has a mutiny it has a rebellion it has to deal with and the descriptors of how satan and those people are destroyed is here with fire that comes down from heaven. It's not an army of angels and Yeshua coming out of the city. Very different qualifiers. And uh, I think that's my time. Thank you so much.
0: Did you you need a few minutes to wrap your full point up or are you good with that? Uh, I
3: I just had some uh, historical quotes, but I don't I can maybe mention those in different parts of the debate.
0: Okay. <clears throat> All right. Well, let's bring uh Uh, Matt back in here. So this is a great opportunity. I'm going to take a pause break if you guys want to get some water uh, at this moment. The purpose of these debates, um, specifically this one, you know, we really wanted to get somebody to debate who was a believer, um, biblical cosmology versus uh, the globe model. We actually couldn't find us. We actually had to go on the outskirts and find an atheist to debate a believer. Uh, But tonight we have two brothers in the faith Uh, discussing and debating, you know, we'll get to some discussion where they're going to be at the end where they're going to be discussing together. Uh, These the next set will be rebuttals again, muted again. Uh, But this is going to be a great opportunity for you in the chat room. Um, uh, I really wanted to do these type of style debates where we talk about really tough subjects where we differ so greatly, but we can still be able to do it in love. And, you know, the comments, you know, you guys are overall doing a great job, but continue to keep that in mind. We are all on the same team, uh, you know, if we are believers in Messiah, we don't need to bicker and fight with one another. Plead our case. Debate passionately. Th- these are things that, that, are, that are wonderful and great, but division and dividing and, and name calling, um, you know, you, you just, you know, go on to Facebook for more than two minutes and this is all that you see. And all this is, is a black eye to our Messiah and we're not reaching the world. So that is our, the purpose of not only tonight, but we are going to be doing a debate show here on Take on the World TV and we're going to be coming up with different things that are going to be moving in the future. Um, so cool. want you guys to be all a part of that um, and come aboard and hopefully we can learn how to discuss with one another and, and talk out some of these things that we may just differ so greatly on, but at the end of the day, we can discuss them. So right now, what we're going to turn over to Matt. Matt, you have 25 minutes. Uh, you're going to be able to do a full rebuttal of, of Sean's presentation there and get your points across. Uh, you've got the floor. Let me go ahead and set your clock here. And Matt, uh, you're still muted. You want to unmute? There we go. All right. Um, are you ready, Matt?
1: I guess I'm probably going to need like a couple of hours to, to rebuttal again. <laughs> real,
3: real quick, before we before we go much further, I think there's some people yep. in the live chat that are pretty confused um, about, and I'll be honest, just as I am, Matt, brother, your, your first uh, few minutes that we had, um, I, you know, like I sent a message to you in our group message before we did the debate, just trying to clarify your exact position tonight. So there's a lot of people in the chat that think I do not understand your exact position. Would you be willing to succinctly clarify just for everyone involved? So yeah, me. Everyone <clears throat> I, I, do, I I can, I can give you an additional,
0: topic. I can give you an additional three minutes on that if that's good with you, Matt. That's fine. All right, let's go ahead. Hopefully, and what that.
1: I go through will probably clear out some of the stuff. Okay, okay. Well, is well, there
3: is there a way we could just is there any way to just like enunciate it in a clear single sentence, maybe, so that everyone knows exactly your position in this debate?
1: Uh, I guess the simplest version would basically be after the Messiah's return and the seventh Hodesh or seventh month of 73 AD marks the beginning of the thousand-year reign from that period of time, uh, after which uh, Satan is released and puts us in the Great Deception era currently. Okay, thank you. Is there any questions specifically about that?
3: No, no. That's, I'm just want okay. to clarify for myself and for some of the people in the audience
1: that, that we're trying to Got figure it. out what's going on. Yeah. All right. And I'm sure some of you are doing math right now and going, well, how the heck does that work if we're in the year 2022? (laughs) So uh, I'm going to try to see how much of this I can get through in the next 28 minutes, uh, potentially. All
0: right. Uh, All right, Matt. Go ahead. You've got your time now.
1: All righty. So let me pull up uh, a window that I had earlier. All right, so I want to I want to read through this here in a second. I just wanted to revisit this timeline here really quick. So we do we have two two wars that end up happening between the nations and uh, the Messiah. Okay, it's not a singular event. We can, we're going to read through it in a minute, uh, but there's two wars. There's also two resurrections one that happens here uh, before the reign of the uh with messiah and then again uh right before the great white throne judgment which we will again we'll also read so us being in this uh deception era right here uh puts us after the millennial kingdom
0: I'm going to go ahead and pause the time here. Uh, uh, Matt, you are. Is, you just, oh, uh, Matt, I do you just agree.
1: Matt, you just broke the up. Jerusalem this? is not the worldly Jerusalem uh, on earth. I agree with that 100% as a worldly spiritual. Well, it will be a physical, but currently it's spiritual. Um, that comes down. It is not the one that's on earth. I do agree that the Messiah reigns forever. I agree with that. I believe he's currently raining. Currently raining now. I can't tell if uh, my wife said I was frozen. I just wanted to double check that. You're back. Good. We're back. Okay. Chris, do you mind telling me where I last cut off, please? Um. Do you have any idea what my last words were?
0: <laughs> I, you know what? You you were frozen there. So I'm going to, I'm going to reset your time back to 26 minutes because you broke up probably about a minute ago.
1: Okay. Do you remember what I was last talking about?
0: Uh, Sean, uh, if you want to jump in here and tell us. Can you hear Sean? Oh, Sean, can you hear us?
3: Hey, okay. um, I just, last I heard, he's just trying to read over this timeline again, and he said something about he does believe
1: that that Yeshua reigns forever.
0: Yes, that's right. Yep, that's right.
1: Right, okay. Okay, yeah, so you guys didn't miss much. So uh, he is reigning forever. Uh, The saints are reigning with him currently uh, on earth somewhere. Um, Sean, uh, brought the Messiah talking about uh, upon his return, that he will separate the sheep and the goats. I agree. I don't believe it's a great white throne judgment, though. Uh, there is a separation of the reign of Messiah and his saints and then the nations who are outside of that. Um, oh, so much to go over. Let's see. Sean um, uh, brought up, uh, again, I uh, mentioned this, in, uh, the Old Testament prophecy. Uh,
2: We take quite a bit of time
1: to be able to go through the context of every one of those prophecies. And I will admit that I haven't gone through in great study. I do know for the ones that I am familiar with uh, that they were not all millennial kingdom prophecies. They were conditional futures if Israel obeyed or if Judah obeyed, depending on the context and what would happen if they disobeyed. And it happens to call uh, the repentance and Israel's repentance into covenant with them which is what the latter chapters are about. Ezekiel's also 13 scrolls are out of order. Uh we probably don't have the time to go into the context of, of all of that. Um uh, but what seems to look like a millennial kingdom setup uh in those chapters are actually a conditional future if Israel repented and returned which is uh in chapter 43 somewhere. So, um Where uh, where else? Um, I guess I'm gonna probably just jump over to Revelation so that I can get some, give some clarity on this. Um, So in Revelation. 20. We'll start there. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven with a key to the abyss and a great chain in his hand. He seized the dragon, the ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss, closed it, put a seal on us so that he would no longer deceive the nations until a thousand years are complete. After that, he must be released for a short time. And I saw the thrones of people seated on them, were given authority to judge. And I saw the people who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of God's word, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and who had not accepted the mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life, the resurrection, and reigned with the Messiah for a thousand years. And the rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were complete. A secondary resurrection this, first, uh, this is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God of and of Messiah, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are complete, Satan will be released from prison and will go out to deceive the nations. If Satan is going out to deceive the nations, how can we possibly be 100% certain of anything that we can see in this world we do not know that for certain we also have uh arguments against science uh we we don't believe hopefully in the moon landing um everything has been lied to us everything has been deceived about us uh or deceived to us um and we then somehow rely on history uh, the chronology of history to be accurate uh, which hopefully i'll have time to dive into that a little bit later I, it just isn't the case in any event uh the uh satan is released to deceive the nations it also doesn't say that the messiah goes anywhere during this time so the messiah and the saints are still reigning and say that they disappeared or went back into heaven or any of those things. They're still here. Nations are being deceived currently. Uh, and the Gog and Magog to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. They came up over the surface of the earth and surrounded the encampment of the saints, the beloved city. Then fire came from heaven and consumed them. So if, we're, if you're familiar with the story of Gog and Magog in the Old Testament, Israel has, is returning from uh, captivity. Their, their city is in ruins. They don't have any protection. And Gog is gathering the nations, including the ones that belong to him, to go and destroy Israel. And upon their descent to go uh, destroy Israel, they're destroyed by God supernaturally. And the same thing will happen Uh, coming up after this time of deception, um, before the end of the deception period, Satan will gather the nations to go against the beloved city wherever it is on this earth uh, where the saints are and try to destroy them and they will be consumed by fire. The devil who has deceived them um, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet are. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then, I saw a great white throne, and one seated on it. Earth and heaven fled from his presence, and no place was found for them. <laughs> I also saw the dead, and great, all standing before the throne. The books were opened. Another book was opened, which was the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by uh, what was written in the books. And the sea gave up its dead, death and Hades gave up its dead. All were judged according to their works. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So, so far we have chronology of things happening. The millennial reign happens. Then the great deception. Then another war of the nations against um, the Messiah and his saints in the beloved city somewhere on this earth um, and then the great white throne judgment okay uh, moving on to 21 <clears throat> then i saw again then i saw a new heaven a new earth for the first heaven and earth had passed away and the sea no longer existed and i saw the holy city new jerusalem coming down from heaven now after all that that we just read the holy city jerusalem is coming down from heaven prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling with uh, is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death no longer exists. Grief, crying, and pain will exist no longer because of previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne says, look, I'm making everything new. He also says, right, because these were faithful and true. And he said to me, it is done. I'm the Alpha and Omega beginning in the end. I'll give water as a gift to the thirsty uh, from the spring of life. The victor will inherit these things and I will be his God. He will be my son. Uh, but the cowards and unbelievers, vile murderers, sexually immoral sorcerers, idolaters and liars, their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And then it goes on uh, to a uh, more section of the New Jerusalem. Uh, and so on and so on. The main purpose of me reading all that is a sequence of events, a chronology of the things that happen. These events are explained to be happening at one time. It's clear to me as I read this that these are chronological events that happen over a period of time, uh, putting if we are in the Great Deception period, we're looking forward to Satan gathering the nations to wage war against the saints. Uh, They will be destroyed, and then the Great White Throne Judgment then the new Jerusalem will come down. Um, quickly, one of the things that I was not able to go over before is just quoting some verses uh, that are reflective of the New Testament uh, writers, including the Messiah, speaking to the people of the, they referencing, 21 21st century christians in matthew 16 24 through 28 then yeshua said to his disciples if anyone comes to me he must deny deny himself take up his cross and follow me for whoever wants to save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life because of me will find it what will it benefit a man if he gains the whole world yet loses his life or what uh, will a man give in exchange for his life for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will reward each according to what he has done. I assure you, there are some standing here today that will not taste death until they his kingdom. Okay. Matthew 24. Uh, complex. His disciples came up and called his attention to the temple buildings. Not one stone will be left here on another that, uh, that will not be thrown down. While he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, disciples approached him privately and said, tell us when will these things happen? What is the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Speaking of that temple. So when you see the abomination that causes desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel, Messiah is specifically tying that temple to the abomination prophesied by Daniel. When you see the abomination talking to his disciples that causes desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. I assure you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things take place heaven and earth will pass away but my will never pass away this is why you must be ready because the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect and first corinthians 1 paul called as an apostle of christ jesus by god's will and the Sosthenes, our brother to god's church at corinth to those who are sanctified in christ yeshua and called as saints with all those in the place uh, who call on the name of Yeshua Messiah, our Lord, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord, Yeshua Messiah. I always thank my God for you because of God's grace given to you uh, and Messiah Yeshua, that by him you were enriched in everything, in all speech and all knowledge. In this way, the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, Context is the church at Corinth, so that you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly await for the revelation of the Lord, Yeshua Messiah. He will also strengthen you to the end so that you will be blameless in this day of our Lord, Yeshua Messiah. It's not talking to 21st century Christians. God is faithful. You were called by Him into fellowship with His Son, Yeshua. Messiah our Lord. First Corinthians 15. Listen, I am telling you a mystery. We will not all fall asleep. It was then generically saying, Christians of all time until the 21st century, but we will all be changed in a moment, the blinking of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we will be changed. First Thessalonians 4:13 through 18. We do not want you to be informed brothers concerning those who are asleep, those who are asleep so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. Since we believe that Yeshua died and rose again in the same way, God will bring uh, with him those who have fallen asleep through Yeshua. For we say this to you by the revelation from the Lord. We who are still alive at the Lord's coming will certainly have no advantage over those who have fallen asleep if paul here was trying to include 21st century christians he could have easily said those who are still alive at the lord's coming will have certainly have no advantage over those who have fallen asleep he says we who are still alive for the lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the archangel's voice and with the trumpet of god and the dead in christ will rise first then we not those We, who are still alive, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord in the millennial kingdom that's still here, still still reigning. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. James 4.8, you must be patient. You must be patient. Strengthen your hearts because the Lord's coming is near, which means to be at hand. Near. 1st Peter 4 7 now the end of all things is near therefore be serious and disciplined for prayer 1st John 2 18 children it is the last hour as you have heard antichrist is coming even now many antichrist have already come we know this from this that this is the last hour revelation 1 1 through 3 and 7 The revelation of Yeshua Messiah that God gave him to show his slaves that we must quickly take place. He sent it and signified it through his angel to his slave, John, who testified God's word and to the testimony about Yeshua Messiah and all that he saw. The one who reads this is blessed and those who hear the words of the prophecy, what is written in it, are blessed because the time is near. Look, this is... uh, uh revelation 1 7 look he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him including those who pierced him this is clear about when this is happening who will see him those who pierced him it cannot be explained away what generation means or any of the things that i've heard uh, others argue the people who pierced him will see him return Revelation 22, 7, 10, 12 and 20. I'm just going to quickly rattle through these. Then he said to me, these words are faithful and true, and the Lord, God of the spirits, the prophets, He has sent an angel to show his slaves what must quickly take place. Look, I'm coming quickly. The one who keeps the prophetic words of the book is blessed. I know that is argued that quickly means the speed of which he is arriving it may be true, but it is also near. It's going to happen quickly, it's near. Near, coming, about to happen quickly. He also said to me, Don't seal this prophetic words of the book because the time is near. Look, I'm coming quickly. My reward is with me to repay each person according to what he has done. I'm the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, beginning and the end. He who testify, uh, testifies about these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Okay. Daniel 12, uh, 4 and 9. But you, Daniel, This is what i believe to be one uh, of the old testament prophets the furthest in the future prophecies that actually uh is is actually prophesied about in the old testament daniel uh daniel is told to keep these words secret and seal this book seal it for the uh until the time of the end many will roam about knowledge will increase he said go on your way daniel for the words are secret and sealed until the time of the end he's told to seal this book up, seal the scroll up. These things aren't gonna happen yet. This is gonna be a while, you know, like this is, there's a lot that's gonna happen. Uh, compare, comparing that to Revelation, the other actual true end time uh, prophetic book, he also said to me in uh, verse, our chapter 22, verse 10, do, he's, the angel's telling this to John, do not seal. The prophetic words of this book, because the time is near. He is told different than Daniel. These things are about to happen. these things are about to take a clear picture
2: that
1: we're being given by the New Testament writers, including the Messiah, about when this timeline will take place for his return, whichever explains 73, the seventh Hodesh, fulfilling the fall feast, the crushing of the grapes, the last uh, harvest, putting in the millennial kingdom from the millennial kingdom to now, now being in the great deception period. Um, I don't know if we have any time stamps uh, left, I haven't been able to look at the screen, um how much time do i have left uh chris you are at seven minutes seven minutes okay i could probably dig into this a little further um and whatever after the next uh rebuttal Um uh, one of the missing pieces and i'm going to admit i do not know everything i don't know any i'm not that smart everything that i'm sharing with you is uh is not something that I have been smart enough to find on my own intellect, just stuff that has been revealed to me and I'm sharing with you guys, uh, if it is indeed the Father sharing it with you. One of the big missing pieces that I have, two missing pieces, one is all the very detailed events, I've heard. I saw this brought up in chat, and I, I think Sean brought it up, the very detailed events of Revelation and how they all uh, specifically took place. During the tribulation period of what I believe to be 66 AD and 73 AD, I cannot explain every single incremental piece in great detail or within the full context of this entire uh, debate that we're doing right now. I don't have all the information. I will admit all of that. Uh, I can explain some of them. Some of them are speculative at best. Um, Also, history. History. I have mentioned before has been tampered with just like everything else. If we are in a great deception period, would history not have been part of the deception period or deception in general? Uh, one of my friends and one of the uh, millennial post-millennial groups, uh, she had brought a, a guy to my attention, professor Gunnar Heinzon. Uh, um, he is an atheist. Okay. And he has spent, most of his life, even until recent years, discovering the uh, erroneous accounts, the chronology of history as we know it today, it cannot be relied upon to be completely and a hundred percent truthful. He and some of his uh, discoveries have shown uh, church buildings, civilizations, groups of people, artifacts that have exactly Duplications of the first and second century, also in the fourth and fifth century, and then also in the eighth and ninth century. Duplicate copies in those time periods. There, the, there would be no way for those things to take place. Uh, so the speculation is that there's 700 or so years added to the timeline of the AD timeline. Okay. Um, the In the destruction of Jerusalem, we all are under under the impression that Rome uh, invaded and the Roman soldiers took over Jerusalem. Uh, It was actually the employed troops of the Arab nation that went into Jerusalem uh, and destroyed Jerusalem. Uh, This is also verified uh, by the tombs that were in that place based on Stratago. strat strat i'm losing my, my brain right now strat, strat, stratigraphy here we go stratigraphy stratigraphically there is tombs uh and waste of arabs in that time period based on the uh, invasion of jerusalem now it's interesting uh gunner also presents is that uh arabs also had a specific kind of coin they had their own currency okay so based on what we understand as as modern history right now, they had their own currency, they gave out their currency, they invaded Jerusalem, and then supposedly, they disappeared for six, 700 years. They forgot how to make currency. After invading Jerusalem, they decided to just not live there for 700 years. And then all of a sudden, 700 years later, They remembered how to make their currency again and distributing their currency and also happened to be living in Jerusalem at that time. Also with the advent of Islam. So we have these two different periods of time where apparently the Arabs disappeared, stopped uh, using their currency, stopped distributing their currency. And then somehow 700 years later, ended up using the exact same currency. That they had 700 years ago so apparently they were able to dig in the soil and find their old currency and, and duplicate it so the argument one of gunner's arguments is that this time is actually compressed and it's actually same events this has happened with church history the church buildings history this is other artifacts that there's sections of time centuries that have passed Centuries over centuries, duplications, triplications of civilizations being identical in history, currency being identical in history, but being at different points in history. And the only, it's not possible to make those arguments based on the current historical timeline. These time events that we consider based on historical chronology, it's actually compressed in our singular events, events that happen, and the way that we understand this isn't based on our, our history books and what we understand to be history, but stratigraphically, when you excavate, these civilizations were not stacked upon each other vertically, as one would expect centuries after centuries, the civilization's compacting over each other but they're actually horizontal stratigraphically they are on the same plane they existed during the time copies or, or triplicate copies of these people groups these buildings uh, currencies glass tiles all these things that were used and duplicated over time So uh, I don't know all the details and uh, the main events uh, to explain history in great detail. It's actually just a recent discovery of mine, and I'm only sharing this to at least allow you guys to question the validity of the chronology of the history that we are told today, that we are fed just like science, we are fed, just like cosmology, we are fed. If those things were all lies, would history not also be something that is lied about? How do we know it to be 100% true? It's an impossibility.
0: All right. That is <clears throat> that is time right there. Uh, so what we're going to do is uh, we're going to bring in Sean. So we're, we're going to do this a, a slightly a little different. Instead of doing a cross-question at this round, uh, Sean, you're going to have your full 25 minutes uh, rebuttal because you've now heard uh, almost, in a sense, two presentations. So now you can go into a rebuttal, and then we're going to come back to Matt for uh, his final 15-minute rebuttal. And then, Sean, you get last word before we go to a Q&A round, and then that will be tonight's debate. So, Sean, you have, uh, you have um – We'll, we'll go since we gave him 28 minutes cause he needed a few minutes to clarify some things. You've got 26 minutes and the clock starts now.
3: Awesome. Thank you, brother. Thank you, Matt. I appreciate your comments and, uh, and rebuttals to some of the things I brought up. Um, I, I think the first thing I would probably want to talk about is I, I just, um, I believe that you and I as brothers, we have a very different definition of the word reigning. Uh, the scriptural definition that we see emphatically throughout Scripture of reigning, as many of those verses that I brought up in my first, and my first opening statements, um, is not in a an aloof or unseen reign. Um, it is very practical, very real. The nations, I mean Isaiah two verse four, Yeshua literally arbitrates disputes among the nations. So that in no in no sense of any any colloquial or legal use or common use of the of those words in that verse do we see that in reality today so regardless of any questioning on historians and the accuracy of timeline or the accuracy of events given through history and how you may have come to question that in the past few years The definitions given to us from the basic words used in these very, very blatant scriptures tell us Yeshua is not reigning on the earth and he's not settling disputes, arbitrating disputes amongst the nations. There's active wars going on right now amongst the nations. So that just, you know, there's so many different, there's so many different qualifiers that would say this theory, and, and respectfully, that's what I'd have to put forward with what you're, what you're claiming tonight. This theory is just that. It's just a theory that, respectfully, I'm going to go through some of the bullet points I've taken notes on. It, it's a theory based on, on a poor understanding of of Scripture uh, as a whole, as well as a skewed introduction to the history of Israel and the Scriptures as a, as a manuscript concept given down through time. Um, and this is something that I've actually, uh, put forth in my life to go study out because I saw some, some issues, right? I saw some things that said, well, I don't understand why it says this and says this. And why did, why do, you know, people from this camp claim this and this, you know, people over here claim that. So this is what I've been systematically doing since, uh, last 20 years of my life. Um, I know some people tell me that I look young, but I am almost 43. So I'm 42 and I, uh, I've spent many years trying to study this, um, contrary to to what some of the more loud voices in the, in the live chat may be talking about tonight. I do not think that I know everything, but I am confident in what I have studied. And that's something that I would hope that anyone that's putting forward themselves to teach Scripture would actually remain confident in that they've studied what they're talking about and can articulate it in an, in an edifying way for the believer listening. So that is my goal. That's my heart. I, I do and you you've readily admitted that you're not a teacher and you do not have um you don't have a platform in that way and that you're still you've come into this theory that you're studying out for the last two years and you know I, I don't mean this in a, in a disrespectful way but i just want to say very bluntly that that is very apparent in how you're explaining this or or what i would say is the the very rough explanation I'm getting from you about this idea because I'm hearing a lot of claims that are not substantiated by Anything that anybody could go to and say, oh, that's that's written down, that's acknowledged, or that's verified, or my physical observation, I can see that what he's theorizing could have some validity because I can see that in reality. So when I hear something like Yeshua is reigning, the saints are reigning, which is the promise of the covenant of the resurrection, and but you don't know where, you just say somewhere, I, man, that's rough. <laughs> that is rough for any believer that might want to hold on to that idea and say, Oh man, my Messiah is reigning now on the earth amongst the nations. All these wonderful, beautiful passages of him stopping the bloodshed, the warfare, the violence, the the human trafficking. The I mean, the, all of that horrific parts of life we can observe. And I see someone tell me that Yeshua is reigning now. Why would any unbeliever want to believe in the Bible and a Yeshua who's reigning and not being able to stop that mess? Because that is not the promise of the Bible. That is not There is what's called a time of the Gentiles. There is a time prophesied. I'm going to go over those prophecies here in just a minute in my time. But there's a time that's actually the Father knows what's going to happen throughout time. He knows the end from the the beginning, Isaiah 42.10. So he knows when his Messiah is going to reign and what the earth is going to look like during that time. And he gave us a ton of qualifiers for that. And we do not live in those qualifiers, not under any definition of those terms ever, ever used by anybody, not even in joking regard. I know. Uh, Yes. I would say the same thing to an amillennialist, someone that, you know, thinks that we're making the kingdom happen now by getting more converts over time. Um, What you did explain, even though you opened up saying that you're not a particularly a preterist, but you, you did clarify uh, before we rebuttal that you do believe the millennial reign started in AD 70. And so that uh, that I really want to, you know, thank you for helping clarify that and that you believe that at AD 70 or sometime shortly thereafter, the millennial reign began and ended. So that means we've already went through it as a, the world, the experience of the world, the history of the world is, in your view, has already gone through the millennial reign and has now come out the other side of it where Satan's let out. He's going to deceive the nations. If that's the case, um, uh, I, I would, I would differ on, you know, the revelation 20, uh, description when satan's let out for a short time i don't think that it's been a short time i think we've got so much documented uh history both from archaeology and anthropology from from non-sec secular sources so like it, you'd have to start claiming that anyone that digs in the dirt and finds records of manuscripts and dates and times and genealogical records that no matter what their religious belief even the christians that are archaeologists that they're all lying now too so this is a huge problem with this type of assumptive idea that we can't trust any of history. So if that's the case, I don't know how you make up your mind on any of this stuff when it comes to eschatology. I don't know how, if you can't trust any of history, what validating evidence has anyone given you to believe that the millennial rains already already coming on? Why would you trust them? So I, I don't quite understand the the logic overall with this idea, much less the, the widespread blanket assumptions that would have to be taken in order to discount all observable uh, ideas that point to a, a trace and a record of mankind and civilization changing in, throughout time through personal family records, not just through government approved records, but through personal family records. So with that said, not only have we gone over the, the scriptural qualifiers in my opening presentation about what the world would look like if the kingdom was here, which never goes away, a kingdom that's always here and can be seen and drawn to by the nations in a specific region from the Euphrates to the Nile that never goes away. So, to rebut to your idea that Yeshua and the saints are somehow already resurrected and reigning somewhere utterly, utterly contradictory to scripture for, for anyone to make that claim. It's not somewhere there's specific qualifiers where the kingdom will be and how long it will be here forever. I would also say that there, I'm, I'm a lot of this, a lot of the points I'm hearing brought forward are considered personal interpretations on certain passages. Um, And like I said earlier, it's definitely, you, you acknowledge that you've, you've studied this for a short time and that, in a few years before you came onto this idea, uh, you started studying from a Torah based teacher that was, uh, explaining, um, wedding covenant theology to you from a Torah lens perspective. And I've heard that theology for quite some time. I'm having actually have in mind the guy that you're, you're thinking about. I actually think I've invited him to a personal conversation, um, in, in the past, which he, he declined, but, um, because he's the main proponent in most Torah crowds for the type of theology that you laid out in your opening statements with your timeline and chart of your covenant theology and the, the parallels of the Ketubah and Mount Sinai. And unfortunately, both you and that teacher and many Torah teachers pull that covenant wedding theology and all those isegetical inferences and metaphors and, and attempts at linking ideas to these metaphoric concepts, they pull that directly from Judaism. Whether the the average person knows that or not, there's many people that have like myself that have taken the time to study these things. What does Judaism teach? What have they taught? How much of Judaism's theology has the Catholic Church carried over, as well as the Protestant churches? And even now, in the last seventy years, how many Torah based communities have carried over uh, large theological component pieces of Judaism that is utterly contradictory to Scripture? Because We've been sold this narrative that oh well they're Jewish they have you know they have got the law they've always said the law so therefore they must know it better than us. It's about the same people that reject Yeshua. How can you claim to know the Word made flesh when you reject the the walking knowledge of light and truth in the Word? So there's a there's a a theological underpinning that I've seen coming into a lot of these arguments from you that I I feel would come from a very invalid source of hermeneutics. And there's another thing I'm about to go into some of the, you know, the, the bigger rebuttals, but just, just for everyone listening, I want to lay out some of these ideas of what I'm hearing from you. If we're talking man to man, believer to believer, we're brothers in the faith. Um, you, you opened up to say that if you, you know, if this was something that, you know, you, like I said, before we started, I, I just hope that truth prevails. Right. And this is, becomes a thing where I would hate for anyone to be theologically intimidated into believing something that's not in the scripture. That's not plainly spoken what's worse is i would it would it would hurt my heart to hear anyone or see anyone actually start believing in something that scripture literally um, speaks directly the opposite because the person presenting applies a sense of theological intimidation whether maybe unwittingly maybe subconsciously maybe not not with any mal, mal intent right not with any maliciousness just it's how they were taught and we see this a lot in many uh, religious communities where you have a prevalent doctrine And the people that have latched onto this doctrine, regardless of its validity in scripture, they love it. It makes them feel good for whatever reason. They then start qualifying their belief in that doctrine with emotional experiences, with subjective theological intimidation. And I've heard that from you about three times already tonight. It's where you say you were shown this. This is a huge issue that I hope that um, everyone listening can be aware of these these statements that are thrown into this type of argument to say, "Well, I was shown this." I hope not, because hopefully you picked up that that terminology from the people that showed you this doctrine and try to explain this doctrine to you. Because everything I've seen discussed tonight, as far as what you're putting forward, as not not just that we'll go over the timeline. I actually uh, took a screen cap of your timeline so we can go over it in a minute, but. But just the theological implications of what you're talking about, as well as just ignoring some of the direct actual passages of the words, like I just mentioned from Isaiah 2, 2 through 5, the descriptors therein. And if you're shown this, then it's utterly contradictory to scripture. So who's right? This puts the believer listening in a very untenable and and contrary state where they have to realize, okay, wait a minute, this guy claims he was shown this. And that, that inference is used amongst believers in a church lingo setting. Um, of the spirit of God showing people this. And if and if you don't mean to use it in that regard, then please clarify next time you get a chance to speak. But that's the implication I'm hearing for you is that you're shown this by God's spirit himself. That's rough because there is so many, many issues <laughs> with this doctrine, some of which I've already mentioned. And I'm gonna continue to, to bring out a lot of the issues with this doctrine. You did qualify that you think the millennial reign started between after 8070, So that means approximately the year 1070, the millennial reign would have ended if we're both going off the basic definition that the millennial reign is only a thousand years. And I'm I'm just trusting, we haven't discussed this beforehand, but I'm trusting you're going off that same definition. Okay. So let's look at a few things. Uh, For one, you talked about some of the verses in Mark 8, Matthew 24, uh, Luke 17, Daniel 12, some other places where you think that uh, the millennial reign at eighty seventy that all those prophecies were somehow fulfilled. I still haven't heard. We have heard about you, the way you feel about the end of Revelation, but none of the stuff before that, and that's fine. It's a big topic, like you said. It's hard to get to every single passage, but I just I would also like to jump into uh, some of the prophecy that I've that you stated that you're pulling this idea from, as far as Yeshua, and then. You claim in like First Peter four and some other places that they're saying, oh, it's going to happen. To the coming of the Lord is soon. The coming of the Lord is soon. That we'll be seeing it. Kind of like you mentioned First Thessalonians four, and Paul's pronoun reference of we, where he says, "And we who are alive and remain at the coming of the Lord, right, will be taken after those who are raised from the dead and in the dirt." To, implement, to give the implication that Paul was talking about himself as well, but yet Paul died in approximately AD 65 in Rome, and so I, I, he wouldn't have been talking about himself either. But at the same time, Paul gives us a ton of qualifiers, like I've already mentioned in my opening statements, for when the day of the Lord would happen and what that would look like. No worldwide earthquake happened in AD 70 when the Romans invaded Jerusalem and destroyed the temple and slaughtered about 500 million people. Um, the, the, the kingdom like Daniel prophesied, like I went over and, and, uh, Revelation, excuse me, Daniel seven, the kingdom, that fourth kingdom of the beast that is, uh, persecutes the saints and speak blasphemies against the most high who's taken out by the Messiah, that kingdom that Titus, the guy who came in in 80, 70, lived another 11 years after eighty seventy. he was not killed at this moment that, uh, people in your theological position claim that you should return and start the millennial reign. So, the, I mean, your immediate king of the kingdom that comes in at that time that tries to be put into that final day of the Lord reference it does not qualify. That I mean, there's it's so anyway, um, that's just another uh, option right there that that put forward for the people to think about, um, as well as we have a prophecy about the scattering and, and this why this would happen, plus a time period that it would not be the end. So I'm going to uh, pull this up on screen and see if we can't read it real quick. so that we can show the people um, a little bit what I'm talking about. All right. This is the Testament of Levi found amongst the Dead Sea Scrolls right next to Jubilees and Enoch and Genesis and Deuteronomy and Exodus. It's also um, amongst the writings of the Ethiopians as well as was put into the Armenian canon. And this is what I was talking about earlier about so many of us have this false understanding of the history of the scriptures and the history of the Israeli prophets, because we've been given a weird censored version from Judaism throughout the years. The Testament of Levi chapter 16 directly prophesies and the Levi, who's the, the son of Jacob, one of the patriarchs living in the land of Goshen. When this was written, this would be between the books of Genesis and Exodus in a chronological timeline. The Testament of Levi one through five says he learned this information from the book of Enoch. Now we don't have the fullness of the writings of the book of Enoch the, what we do have in first Enoch is what um is considered a compilation of scrolls it's not showing um if uh Chris if you're still listening could could you please allow my my share screen to come in yep <clears throat> okay there it is all right so this is the testament of levi And basically, this is the the son of Jacob in the land of Goshen. This is a documented work that was in some canons around the world in history, just was not put into the Catholic canon and was not definitely not carried over into the American canon, which got most of all their information from the Catholic canon. So he's prophesying directly from the book of Enoch about this second dispersion of Israel. And he says in Testament of Levi 16, one through five. Now I have learned in the book of Enoch that for 70 weeks, you shall go astray and profane the priesthood and pollute the sacrifices. And you shall make void the law and set at nothing. The words of the prophets by evil perverseness, you shall persecute righteous men and hate the godly. This is exactly what Yeshua was reprimanding the scribes, Pharisees and the Levite priests in Matthew 23. The words of the faithful shall you abhor and a man who renews the law in the power of the most high, you shall call a deceiver. They did that in John chapter 8. They called Yeshua a deceiver. And at last you shall rush upon him to slay him, not knowing his dignity, taking innocent blood through wickedness upon your heads. They chanted that in as Yeshua was brought before Pilate, let his blood be upon our heads. And your holy places shall be laid waste even to the ground because of him. And you shall have no place that is clean because you shall be among the Gentiles, a curse and a dispersion, Here's the time qualifier until he shall again visit you and in pity shall receive you through faith and water. Now, if you can share with me the moment where this actual second coming happened, this is what I said. I was, I guess I was kind of waiting for some actual presentation of what you thought um, from most preterist arguments about an actual second coming event at the day of the Lord event and AD 70, But I'm not seeing it. It's not a day where you sure return with angels and routed out the wicked and killed the first and second beasts and locked away Satan for a thousand years. We don't see any evidence of that. All we see in all of history is the Romans came in, destroyed the Jewish people and scattered them again, just as was prophesied. And this is what... Paul would be talking about. Same thing with the writer of Hebrews, where he encourages them about as the day approaches, let's not give up meeting with one another. Same thing with 1 Peter 4 7. We know that our time is near. They all had these prophecies. They all had the book of Enoch, also found with the Dead Sea Scrolls, a major scriptural resource for the first century believer. They all had the Testament of Levi. They knew the scrolls from which the prophecies were given about the first dispersion as well as the second dispersion. The book of Jubilees, chapter 1, directly tells us of the first dispersion, literally in the Exodus 24 through 30 one moment on mount sinai with moses yahweh warns him i know that you've done all this we brought your people here we've got them out of bondage in egypt but they're going to grow fat and lazy and rebellious and i'm going to have to disperse them later it's prophesied to israel all throughout history from the days of enoch there would be two dispersions and that at the end of that dispersion is what's considered the great day of the Lord, when the Most High, the Father, and the Son actually come down and bring their dwelling place on the earth, and they never leave at that point. This is the huge qualifiers, and I, I think that we're, we're kind of missing here. So the first century believers like Peter and Paul and whoever wrote Hebrews, they would absolutely understand the idea of the second dispersion and absolutely 100% know that they should warn their people about it. They were already seeing the signs of it as the Roman Empire was in, colluding with the Pharisees, Orthodox Judaism at the time, to push Christians out of the synagogues and persecute them more and more every year. This all escalated in the times of Yeshua's resurrection leading up to the dispersion of the Israel and then got worse after Roman invaded and took over Judea. So the Council of Jamnia in AD 90 where then suddenly now anyone that professes Christ could no longer fellowship in any synagogue, any Jewish synagogue, and was considered an enemy not only of the Israel, of the of the pharisees and jews but also of rome and this is when they started the widespread persecution and began the throwing them the lions and different things like that burning them at the stake so this was uh there's the point is the second dispersion was already prophesied we don't have to retroactively and in and in ignorance take the descriptions of the second dispersion and try to say that was the coming the second coming of the lord none of the qualifiers fit in fact, it was already a prophesied event that there would be a time between the second dispersion and the actual coming of the Lord. According to the timeline I'm hearing from from you, my brother Matt, you're putting the second dispersion directly at the coming of the Lord, and that's not what prophecy does. So that would be a huge problem um, with with this concept. Also, just wanted to—I uh, I know that you said you believe Revelation is chronological from chapters 19 through 21. I would highly encourage to take a revisit that as far as the descriptors none of the prophets are chronological you already mentioned ezekiel and i agree i understand the scrolls of ezekiel have been collected and and compiled by the scribes out of chronological order but honestly brother it just doesn't matter isaiah is not in chronological order either i mean like there's a ton of prophecies that are not in chronological order but it didn't have to be because the, the prophets gave you qualifiers within what they were talking about so that they to a competent reader as far as someone that understood the scriptures, the history, the context, especially if Isaiah is writing to the people of his day in Northern Israel, knowing about the Assyrian king that's going to come invade and all these kinds of things, like then you would, you would understand that he would, he would be given a prophecy to people that would understand what he's talking about. All along the way, the prophets always talk about something and then stop and talk about something else in a different chapter. I mean, this is, this is synonymous in all prophets. Even Yeshua does this in the gospels. So there's no book of prophecy in scripture that's absolutely chronological. That's, that's just not the pattern that we see. So I, I would say neither is revelation. Um, And I'm going to give some things here in just a minute to show that revelation was believed to still have not yet happened after the time period that you say the millennial reign already began. So chapter 20 continuation from chapter 19 in revelation goes through and talks about, messiah showed up the saints resurrect and rule and reign with him for a thousand years satan's locked away and then all the way at the end of the thousand years it tells you what's happens at the great white throne judgment satan's destroyed he tries to he drives one last flailing attempt to deceive people and attack the great beloved city which is the new jerusalem which is between the euphrates and the nile a specific spot of location on the earth and he fails he's, he's throwing like a lake of fire the people that that um Try to attack with him or destroy it as well. Like they lose the city, doesn't lose reigning, doesn't lose prominence, doesn't disappear, doesn't go away. It's there forever, just as it's prophesied. But let's pull up something real quick, just from some of the uh, some of the people in history that are going to tell us very clearly that the um, um, after eighty seventy, there was still they were still waiting for these events that are mentioned in Revelation to happen. So this is an, uh, from Demonstration of Apostolic Preaching, Irenaeus. And One second, let me pull this up here. Um, I'm sorry, Chris, if you're listening, could you please um, thank you so much. So this is a second century Bishop of Lyons that that taught new converts about the faith and helped them disciple. And he, in one of his books, in Demonstra- Demonstration of Apostolic Preaching, he talks about, for he was come to whom remains in heaven, the kingdom. So even in the second century, this is approximately 150 B or 150 A.D., He's saying that the kingdom is still in heaven at that point. why? Because as I talked about in my opening segment, the kingdom comes down. He also says, wherefore also he is the expectation of the Gentiles, just like I talked about, the nations are waiting for him to come as well. This has not happened and it did not happen in 150 AD. of those who hope in him because we expect of him that he will establish the kingdom has not happened, speaking future tense. Letter to the Philippians from Polycarp chapter 5 verse three, also second century CE. This is about 163 uh, AD. In like manner, the younger man must be blameless. This is him repeating some instructions from Paul's letters. Neither should they be whoremongers, nor feminine persons, nor defilers of themselves. With men shall inherit the kingdom of God. So basically saying, if you do these things, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, it's not on the earth. They would have known. They would have learned the Torah, as we talked about, Isaiah 2, 2-5, Micah 4, 1-7. If the kingdom of God was already on the earth, the nations would have already been drawn to it and would have already been taught Torah. You don't have to have polycarp to go and share this among the uh, of the cities in Asia Minor, what used to be called Anatolia, to explain to them how to get into the kingdom of God. Dialogue with Trifo, Justin Martyr, 2nd century. He goes on to say, emphatically, this is a conversation with him, what the Trifo says, but tell me truthfully, do you really believe? This is 2nd century also, approximately 157 A.D., Trifo is asking Justin Martyr, do you really truthfully, tell me truthfully, do you really believe this place Jerusalem shall be rebuilt? And do you actually expect that you Christians will one day congregate there to live joyfully with Christ, together with the patriarchs, the prophets, the saints of our race, or even those who become proselytes before your Christ arrived? That means Trifo did not believe Matthew 27 was the first resurrection. He understood all the historical patriarchs of his race, all the way back to Adam, just like Hebrews 11, 39 through 40 says, are still asleep. They're still waiting for the resurrection. All happens at the same time. Justin Martyr replies, whereas I and all other wholehearted Orthodox Christians feel certain there will be a resurrection of the flesh, that is future tense, followed by a thousand years in the rebuilt, embellished and enlarged city of Jerusalem, just as Isaiah 49 and Revelation 21 explain, as was announced by the prophet Ezekiel,
0: Isaiah, and others. And that is time. Thank you for There's the time. a 26 minute here. Let's go ahead and add Matt in. Okay, guys. Wow, <clears throat> the chat room is off the charts, guys. You guys are you guys are creating um, debates all over there as well. So, um, guys, we have just completed the first two rounds. Now we're going to go into a, a shorter season right here. We're going to go into uh, a 15 minute rebuttal. This is your final rebuttal before we get to. The Q&A. So this is your opportunity to make your, your best pitch, uh, counter some, something that your opponent has said, and then we will go into a QA and a session. And then we're going to allow the chat um, to ask Sean a question if you are from the opposing side. And then if you're from the opposing side, you'll be able to ask Matt a question. I will pick the best question um, from each party at the end of their Q&A session. So do not leave. Uh, because once we do, once we get through this round, uh, we are going to turn on all the mics. And we're going to have some open dialogue. Um, I will be put in charge of people speaking over each other. So, um, Matt, you are up first. This is your 15-minute uh, final pitch rebuttal of everything that Sean had to say, or if you want to clarify and make any strong points before we get to the Q and A round. Um, let me know when you are ready, and I will get your time set for you. Go for it. All right. Here we go.
1: All righty. Well, I don't know that anything I'm going to say in the next 15 minutes is going
2: to have any kind of C see- responses to
1: some of the things I saw or heard uh, Sean saying, some things I saw in the chat. First of all, I don't believe that Revelation is a chronological book in its entirety. The verses and chapters that I quoted was the last two three chapters, which I believe uh, those parts are chronological. Um, I don't read any of the non-canonical books, so I wouldn't be able to uh, refute any of those things. Not that I don't believe that they are scripture or not. I just believe that if we're going to have a debate on a specific topic, that we stay on the same foundation of agreed upon canonical books that we find in the Bible. So that's where I've focused all of my attention, uh, and arguments for, um, uh, I heard, uh, Sean, I heard you say that, uh, my the explanation of the covenants, uh, and ancient covenants and everything that I presented in the first presentation came from a tour teacher. It did not uh, quite the opposite, actually, uh, that the teacher, uh, the stance of the teacher was based on renewed covenant theology. I don't believe that. And I thought I explained that pretty clear and the different timelines and the transition of the Sinai covenant to the new covenant. Uh, also ancient, ancient covenants is not a Judaic manifestation. They didn't create the only compilation of uh, ancient covenant practices. It was uh, world practices at that time including the suzerainty covenant which I spent most of my time focusing on the wedding covenant was actually just an explanation or an example of a dual ratification covenant practice it's ratified or activated in two different parts it's not a you know one one time signature one time ratification and the the purpose of doing that is for uh, my Torah brethren that watch have a clear familiarity with the wedding covenant structure and how it is uh, ratified. So it is an easy point to make in order to bring light to the same or similar ratification process of the suzerainty covenant, which is different. It is not a wedding covenant. Okay. I didn't make a claim that, that the Sinai covenant was a wedding covenant either. It's a suzerainty covenant, a sovereign King, powerful sovereign King making a covenant with a smaller group of people or kingdom this has happened throughout history, throughout kingdoms. Suzerainty covenant is well known. It is not a Jewish manifestation. Um, and I've explained how it was ratified in two parts. None of this thing, none of what I was sharing in that had anything to do with teacher or what somebody else showed me or taught. I didn't learn this from anybody. This was untaught to me. This is a study of ancient covenants on my own and the reading of scripture on my own. and. The clear example of the suzerainty covenant in play through the Sinai covenant establishment and the two-part ratification process, which I also explained uh, through verses and how that worked. Um, I, with respect to the little bit of time I have, I don't want to really go back and review all that. I guess you just review it on a uh, recording. Um, I do believe in a physical reign. I don't, I, I feel like uh, that's not being heard. I'm not, I don't believe in just purely a spiritual reign. There is a physical reign. And although uh, it's not uh, appealing that I can't point and show you where the physical millennial reign is right now, if Satan is released to deceive the nations, would that deception not cause a visual cutoff of the actual kingdom? Can it be proven or disproven either way? No. Um, But we are in a great deception period. Even if that deception period was in the future, would that deception period have any uh, observation of the millennial kingdom still happening at that time? And how would you be able to argue either way with that? Um Let me see what else that uh, was brought up. Um, you yeah, had brought up all the verses, or the verses and the arguments I made with scripture uh, weren't uh, uh, weren't understood properly, or weren't used correctly. You you made your point about my inability to be able to understand scripture, or you uh, uh, exegetically explain or upon this topic and explain it. Yet there's actually no refute or rebuttal on any one of those verses just simply stating how you feel about it um, and and you've studied this for 20 years and I've been looking into this for two years so you know obviously you're smarter than me um, you just never actually addressed any of those things so it's purely just how you feel about what I what I had stated there, there was no actual evidence to support your argument contrary to what I had said Um <clears throat> The main point I want to make is I think the biggest handicap we have is the um, getting a ring on my Facebook uh, is historical evidence uh, to support the argument either way. I need to pull up my screen again, real quick. My apologies. So, a <clears throat> couple of things that I want to point out. One is in, in 192 AD. Uh, there was a large fire that literally destroyed everything. It was said that the fire was so great, the fire had to quench itself because it couldn't be put out. And it was actually noted that it destroyed the archives of Rome. Is noted that Rome lost its memory. How could we rely on history based on cataclysmic events such as that? Also, the when we look at stratigraphically, uh history so well, let me back up right now we have a, an opposition of historical chronology right and empirical evidence and strata anybody that looks into history can see that there's issues with observing and understanding and reading history to the de- to the degree is differing for everybody The evidence that we can look at is the stratigraphy of ancient civilizations. Those are physical, and you like to put visual, you want to be able to see it, visual evidence and the stratus of different civilizations in different time periods, or the assumptions of those based on chronological history. Uh, The problem is, is multifold with that. For example, Rome has had buildings and structures that are identical. And the first and second century, and the third and fourth century, or fourth and uh, fifth century, and then also in the eighth and ninth century. How could the identical Roman uh, buildings exist in three different parts of history, hundreds of years separate from each other? When there's excavations being done, e- even recently, digging into the earth, they have found Roman ruins very quickly. So uh, it, it didn't take very long to get there. I didn't have to scrape through uh, multiple layers of stratus to get to the Roman ruins that supposedly happened 2,100 years ago or 2,000 years ago. It, it was very quick to get to that. Uh, and in 930 A.D., there was a massive cataclysmic event that's recorded. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, uh, what was what was told as two comets or, or twin-headed comet. That uh, that came down and uh, destroyed a great part of the earth. There were earthquakes recorded, talked about during that time. About forty events of earthquakes that happened, <clears throat> and then there was what was called uh, dark earth or dark soil scattered everywhere. There's different names of it, and I don't remember what they are throughout the different uh, people groups of Europe. They all had different names for it, but it was uh, the same thing: it was dark earth, dark soil. Or mud, mud that covered the earth in multiple areas that could be found. Um, Now, when we combine this idea of identical chunks of civilization, hundreds of years apart, duplicate copies, triplicate copies, and we can actually consider them condensed as one period of time and not three identical periods of time scattered over a thousand years. We might actually consider an event around the 900s AD as an event that actually happened around the first century. Stratigraphically, this can be argued, stratigraphically, this can be observed. Historically, there's a bunch of problems. So, historically, we may not see these events. That happened that you want to see in that time period, or you want to hear about, because it's spoken about in Revelation. But we see potentially these uh events, these cataclysmic events happening at 930 uh, uh, or around 900 AD, uh, with and right on top of Roman ruins, like literally sitting on top of ruins. When they're excavating, they're finding this dark matter, this dark earth, this well, this mud on top of Roman ruins. And it could have happened at that time uh there's also no i know i don't have very much time uh just to throw out some random other things when you look at actual historical evidence of paul uh, messiah pontius Pilate, in the first century a.d time period there is no stratigraphical evidence of their existence some people even argue they never existed why is that however if you fast forward up to around seven eight hundred a.d you actually do see evidences of these persons existing. So we have a a little bit of a challenge here. So there's several hundreds of years of time periods that have duplicate, triplicate copies of exact similar civilizations, currencies, uh, tiles that are identical, glasses that were identical, people groups that were identical. And we have uh, an actual stratigraphical evidence of uh, first century christians actually existing around the 7800 a.d mark alongside uh, roman ruins that actually exist in that time and a cataclysmic event that i've already mentioned happening shortly thereafter if we condense these this time period these multiple events that seem to make no sense into one we're either further back in time closer to the first century time period if we take away this this fictitious period of time or the events of the first century are actually closer in time to us either way it is not stratigraphically 2,000 years from the first century period the the, the visual evidence uh supports it chronological history you know who knows where it came from
0: Okay, you do have two and a half minutes left if you want to
1: use them. That's all right. Let me move on to Chris. Okay. For, all right, um, Sean. Okay. Whoops.
0: All right, let's go ahead and add Sean in here. Okay, Sean, we're gonna set that clock again for 15 minutes. This is the final round of I mean, muted mics. I mean it's up to you, Chris,
3: but if you like, I'd love to defer my time to add it to the next segment.
0: Okay, well, that is absolutely what we can do. Um, Since you are deferring your time, you will be able to ask, well, let me, let me get my face on camera. Okay. Um, since you deferred your time, you will be able to get the first question to Matt. All
3: right. Thank you, Matt, for offering, um, mentions of, uh, some of the reasoning that's, that's come into your understanding of why you've, you've latched onto this theory as you were just going over the stratification and some of the evidence thereof, cataclysmic events and whatnot. Um, Are you aware that all archaeology, unless there's dedicated events with time stampers, markers, names of people that are validated in history, are you aware that archaeology is a theory of interpretation? How do you mean? The things found in the dirt have to be interpreted to be placed meaning and assigned value to them, unless there's a specific writing on them that dates it by rulership by a, a recognizable documented long-standing name of a street or a town or a city or a document of, of transaction between rulers or commerce or trade other if there's none of that and you're just looking at mud that's been scraped off of walls at different levels of dirt it has interpretation has to come in
1: mm-hmm.
3: were you aware of that
1: Yeah, I would agree with that. Stratigraphically, we also have uh, layers uh, that prove periods of time between events as well. Well, So That's
3: kind of what I'm getting at, though. The the, the idea of claiming that something proves something because you you dig down in the dirt and you find a layer of an ancient city that they claim, all right, well, this, this has all the remnants of being built in the 1900, and then we dug down another 70 feet and we found something that looks like it was built first century A.D., Because it has and then they're like, all right, well, so we'll go over here to another layer where something unless we have the record of what was built on top of it and what actual cataclysmic event happened, it's being interpreted. So I guess the biggest question I'd have for you is where are you actually getting your your claims? Where's the evidence? Who's who's the people making these claims? Where are you getting these ideas?
1: Uh, So first thing, if if you consider uh, civilizations or people or whatever think events happening over the course of several centuries over a period of time, they would be layer upon layer in the stratus. Would you disagree with that?
3: No, I'm I'm asking specifically, you're making a claim about stratification found amongst archaeology. And I'm asking where did you read this? Where did Oh, you come so you just
1: simply want you just simply want citations.
3: Yeah. Where did you actually come up with this
1: information? Okay, so Dr. Gunner, um, I'm trying to look up his last name right now. My brain is on, uh, falling apart. Uh, uh he's been one of the main influences along with the uh, historic, historians and archaeologists to the findings that they have found that he has compiled with his research
3: does dr gunner um as you're i'm guessing you've either read his books or watched videos produced by him or about him is that what's going on
1: yeah uh, i haven't read any of his books i've I've watched some of his lectures uh, regarding okay. the topic and the sources that he cited
3: is he someone that uh supports the the biblical view of history or does he uh no. okay, I'm, so well i'm sorry
1: I'm, I'm jumping the gun on your question i'm sorry i thought you were referring to his his faith he does uh He does believe in the historical events of Scripture, yes. He does? And he's an atheist, yes.
3: Yep. How far does he— Okay, so you may not know all of his work, but I'm just kind of confused here, because most atheists, um, there's very few atheists that will actually believe the events of of the early church um, Mm -hmm. as they're spread about throughout Europe and, and the Middle East um, in the two to 300 years after Yeshua's ascension. So, um, I don't, I don't know without digging too solely into his work. I, I just, okay. It's interesting. Um, and I guess that would be my first question. So I don't want to, I don't want to keep going. I naturally want to keep going. Cause this is what I do on my show, right? We, we have longer, longer back and
0: forths, but I'll stop.
1: You can, I mean, to Chris, be honest, like
0: <laughs> Chris, you're on mute. If you guys want to continue on that, you can. Each time there is a question asked to the other person, it will count as a question just to keep things sort of in con- uh, control because we are uh, obviously almost getting to 11 o'clock Eastern. So we want to respect your time and everybody else's. So um, uh, you guys can continue on that point because I thought that was very interesting
1: as well. So
3: so that Dr. Gunner, does he actually believe the millennial reign came and went?
1: His understanding, uh, if I remember correctly, um, it, I don't believe everything that he says, obviously there's a, a lot of it's a lot of what I follow is based purely upon his, uh, extrapolation of, uh, evidences of duplicate triplicate, uh, civilizations, uh, based on stratigraphy. So, uh, he does his the way that he understands this cataclysmic event of 1930 is his interpretation of Satan being released at that point in time. Uh, wait, wait so, so
3: this guy does make theological assertions in his interpretations
1: without being a, a
3: believer, yes. So he does believe in the scripture of narrative, so he does. So you're telling me that this archaeologist or researcher, I, I was he an archaeologist or just a researcher? No, he's a researcher, okay? So this particular researcher who claims to be atheist does believe the biblical worldview of history, even up into the appearance of Christ. But the biblical worldview of history blends into the prophecy and the eschatology of the future fulfillment of of the Bible. So he also believes in those prophecies that a millennial reign came and went and ended in 1930.
1: Uh, I haven't heard him specifically talk on the topic, but he does make a lot of his historical uh, bases off of um, scriptural history as it relates to the Old Testament um, events that I'm happened pro- during that
3: time. I'm re- I apologize. I'm really confused. I thought you just said he said the millennial, that he proposes the millennial reign ended in 1930.
1: He believes that Satan was released at that time. I haven't heard him actually say anything about the millennial kingdom one could assume that that would also mean that he believes that the millennial reign happened prior to that
3: okay so and you, and you differentiate an so and one of the things that you do disagree with this guy on is your belief of when the millennial reign happened you believe it started in 80, 70 is that right
1: yeah uh 73 in the seventh uh in the seventh hodesh after the okay. fulfillment of the fall feast as we okay. know it to be. So the way that I would interpret, uh, and again, this is all very, very new information to me. So I wouldn't be able to answer all your questions on this. And it, I actually don't have an, a uh, uh, a liking to history, to be honest. I never really liked it. Uh, however, recently it's been a important component of my stance on uh, eschatology. So I've had to dive into areas that I am not very fond for. Um, if if based on the stratic uh, stratigraphical evidence of this cataclysmic event that's recorded in the nine hundreds ish era, that seems to be so we, we lost you, brother. Your internet's cutting
3: out. And Matt, if you can hear us, your internet is cutting out, brother. We can't hear or see you right now, it's frozen. Oh,
1: how's
0: that? You're starting, dragging my back.
1: Uh, yes, you are. Go ahead. Okay, cool. Okay, um, anyway, so, um,
3: and, and real quick, I just want to make clear, Matt, I hope that you don't yeah. take any of my questions. Or the, uh, uh, or the the serious tone with which I ask them to be an attack on you. This is all done in love, brother. I just, I'm just i going to ask you some tough questions.
1: That's perfectly fine, man. I can already tell you that I don't have the answers to most of them, but we'll go for it. Okay. Um, but I would put, based on my current understanding, which has still has. During a time uh, that has stratigraphically Roman ruins seems fully uh has returned, putting that event around the first century technically and then compressing the two thousand years by several hundred we
3: we missed ninety percent of that statement. You you cut off. <laughs>
1: yeah. My
3: Internet's I want you to. I want power. you to get a fair shake with the audience, so they can hear you. But we're not hearing your arguments. Do you have a? Do you have a way to? Maybe if there's some family members in the house that could jump off your Wi-Fi and give you more dedicated bandwidth.
1: Yeah, let me see.
0: We actually have a. While you're while you're doing that. Um, Matt, you're coming in okay right now. will don't you guys continue?
3: So Matt, I hear you, you mentioning the Roman stratigraphic layers mentioned yeah. by this Dr. Gunner. What about all the other civilizations around the world that do not show, nor have I ever heard from, and I love history, by the way. <laughs> and I don't know if you've had a chance to see much of my channel, but um, i I've never heard of from anyone, ever. Um, in fact, I have a, a cultural family history of Native American, and we have Lots of documented records uh, going way back to hundreds and hundreds of years uh, um, on the North American continent of families and tribes and peoples and places where we were and contracts and treaties, federated nations, um, trade with different federated nations, enemies we had to fight. We had to fight the Lofas, which were the giants in the Chickasaw language. Like We we have a documented history going back way, way back that um, is not Roman or European. And likewise, you also, like I mentioned in my opening statements, you would have that as well from other cultures around the world, the Chinese, the Indians, the Ethiopians, the I mean, there's so many people around the world that that have documented and they've built on top of their cities, depending on where they were. And some have just been lost to history. Some built up new establishments and settlements more recent. But even without the stratigraphic layers, the reason why I brought up my family history being natives of Native America is because they did not typically build standing lasting cities they're more nomadic so but they still have a documented record of a long period of time that would deflate this theory
1: i mean i i wouldn't i'm afraid i wouldn't be able to respond to i know the records that you only have and you know have it's entire nation. I, I mean i'm just saying i don't have them i i, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't it. be able just, to argue your point or contrary yeah. to your point, when I have no idea well, of any of that.
3: Well, this is why I'm giving you the grace on the points you're bringing up with the, the doctor you cited, Dr. Gunner, because you don't actually have his, you didn't see what he saw either. And he's making interpretations based on what he saw. This is what I was getting at. So lots of cultures and civilizations have documented records passed down of genealogy. So this is not interpretations on on mud layers. This is mm-hmm. genealogy right? One family lived a certain amount of time died. The next assessing family lived a certain amount of time. This is a, this is a long-standing history of record keeping. So look, I understand brother. I've seen all the mud flood videos. I've, I've seen the presentations on them. I understand the theories that are being put forward and the natural suspicion that the enemy does try to shade things in history. I just personally can't get on board with every single thing in the last 2000 years being a lie. And more than anything, all what do you, what would you have to say about all the qualifiers I presented in my opening statements, all these massive, amazing, wonderful qualifiers—the nations leaning and trusting in Yeshua and His Kingdom and coming to it for food, water, medicine, um, not being taught war anymore, um, like judging, going to Him for disputes. What, what, how would you settle those with your theory?
1: Uh, <laughs> so. Uh, if- Without going back to the actual verses and the actual scripture, the context of that time, uh, I can only enter in two points. One is not all millennial kingdom uh, type prophecies and the Old Testament prophets are actually prophecies of the millennial kingdom. They are also uh, conditional futures based on the obedience or disobedience of Israel or Judah. Uh, Ezekiel is, is one of my uh, go-to examples of that. Um, As uh, many people are under the understanding that, that Ezekiel, the prophecies of Ezekiel is going to bring forth a third temple and uh, the Levitical priests are going to reign again through the Zadok line and, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, that I mean, is you know, a conditional. Ezekiel, I'm, I'm
3: sorry. I, I, okay, go ahead. Uh, well, I was going to just jump in real quick to say that's just not in Ezekiel, though. That's It's mentioned in Ezekiel, but it's also in Isaiah and other places, specifically the reinstation of sacrifices, the holy mountain with the temple, and the the Levites of, of mortal mankind being reestablished and chosen by Yahweh when, when he and his son return. So that's not just an Ezekiel, but I understand what you mean. I've heard that argument as well from chapter 40 to chapter 48. But um, Isaiah talks about it too. Okay, so I apologize. I asked you too vague of a question. that was my fault. If I were to ask you a very specific question, like Isaiah chapter 2, 2 through 5, where there is no conditional qualification for obedience, it just prophesies that in the last days, the chief of the mountains will be the house of the Lord, all the nations will stream to it to learn the law of the Lord and he will settle disputes and judge amongst the nations. What? How, how do you think that already came and went?
1: Uh, so a couple of things. One is, again, I'd have to go back and look at the context to know if it was indeed uh, not a conditional situation. That's thing. One thing two, with the millennial reign have happened there, He was the ruler, is the ruler, but specifically during this time, he did rule with the saints, the nations.
3: Where? It says that his house is the chief of the mountains and all the nations will stream to it. So where do you think this took place?
1: Very speculatively, uh, probably the landmass of uh, the Antarctic continent that apparently nobody is allowed to go to.
3: Okay. So when I and presented all the scriptures um, during the, my both of my time speaking earlier and I presented the scriptures that explains the promise of the covenant to Israel, that the father and son's house comes down between the Euphrates and the Nile. How do you reconcile that promise with your theory that you just expounded upon?
1: I'm not even sure what you're specifically referencing. It's
3: Genesis 13 and 15 and 22 as well as Jubilees chapter one and chapter 22 and other places, as well as Ezekiel and Zechariah, that the mountain of the house of the Lord descends between the Euphrates and the Nile. That is the promised land to all of people in covenant from Adam to Abraham, to Moses, to Zechariah, to Zadok, to Yeshua, to us. That is the, the geographical land of promise explicitly stated in scripture is that the house of the Lord will land and sit down encompassing, the area between the euphrates and the nile so how how is that addressed in your theory
1: yeah so i don't I'm, again i don't read jubilees or any of the extra canonical kin- books I, I, i'm not familiar I with any of them so i wouldn't be able I, to i didn't present
3: that theory from jubilees in my opening statements i presented it from genesis um so you just quoted
1: or you just mentioned jubilee so i'm yeah, genesis
3: 13 genesis 15. The Euphrates to the Nile is the land promised from Yahweh to Abraham and all his descendants to live forever. So how okay. would your theory address that claim in Genesis?
1: In terms of are you are you suggesting that the holy not Antarctica. The Jeru-
3: so how would you how would your are theory you saying that fun? the new
1: Jerusalem is gonna come down and sit there? That's that's your proposal.
3: That the New Jerusalem in Revelation 21, seven is called the land of inheritance in okay. Isaiah 54. Verse 13, it specifically says Zion, which is the Old Testament name for the New Jerusalem, is the inheritance of the saints. Okay, So the saints, the resurrected believers, inherit Zion, also called the New Jerusalem. And mm-hmm. it specifically is a geographical area that sets itself down. The city that I read off is in the heaven, but then descends, sets down between the Euphrates and the Nile. Okay. The,
1: the yeah. holy city, New Jerusalem, hasn't descended yeah. yet.
3: OK, so this is what I was saying. So if you think the millennial rain's already come and gone and Yeshua is already on the earth, raining with resurrected saints and they're still rainings from somewhere, you think it's in Antarctica in an unknown, unreachable area. Uh, so yes. It's not it's not within the New Jerusalem. You you reject that narrative and you're thinking that it they are still raining from something. It's just we can't go there. We can't see it. And that's what you're saying it's somewhere out in antarctica
1: i'm i speculate that it's the antarctica since it is a undiscovered landmass area however i can't conclude that with 100% certainty the only point i'm making is that the known continents of the world that we uh, are aware of uh quite possibly can't be the only continents of the entire earth that the Messiah and the saints could be reigning on a unknown landmass And through the Great Deception period have made that unbeknownst to us, and we are only aware in this deception era of the known consonants of where we're at now.
3: What are you defining as the word reigning?
1: As a king reigning and ruling?
3: So at what point in history does a king reign over subjects who he never sees and interacts with?
1: He is reigning over subjects that he sees and interacts with. The nations Mm -hmm. are cut off in the Great Deception period for a time to be it's deceived. It's not the description of By Revelation
3: 27 through 10. They're deceived and they come to the beloved city to attack him. Um, so I'm just I'm just confused, I guess. Do you agree with the promise to Abraham that he would receive the land between the Euphrates and the Nile forever? If it says that, that in
1: Scripture, forever? I would agree with it, yeah.
3: Okay, do you think that Abraham is a part of the resurrected saints that are reigning with Yeshua in some unknown place right now?
1: Yeah. Okay. He so died why before read, that.
3: Why isn't he in the land of promise?
1: If you're, again, if you're talking about the holy city, Jerusalem has not come down yet.
3: Okay. So So, Abraham is promised to be resurrected as a part of the covenant and to live forever in between the the Euphrates and the Nile, not in Antarctica. mm -hmm. So why, in your theory, why wouldn't Abraham be where he's promised by God to be?
1: How is it that that only suggests that they can't be in existence on this earth in a different place for a period of time during the Great deception before the holy city of Jerusalem comes down because that's not the what says that covenant. that can't be that's not, that's well, not, that's uh, Abraham surprising. also died and wasn't in, uh, in the promised land for you know as so, long as he's been dead.
3: he's still in Sheol, according to Scripture. You're right. Because that's also explained in Psalm 49 and a whole bunch of other places about the process of the resurrection. That's part of the covenant promise is that Yeshua redeems our soul from Sheol and resurrects us to glorification.
2: Mm -hmm.
3: So we're immortal. Correct. And this promise is all the saints. It happens to them all at the same time. So, When do you think the Mm -hmm. first resurrection happened?
1: Uh, Like date-wise?
3: According to your theory, where would you place the first resurrection?
1: Uh, sometime after the seventh Kodesh of, or seventh month of 73 AD, the beginning of the millennial reign.
3: So, what promise do you have?
1: To reign with How? the Messiah what, after what the second resurrection.
3: You, in, in your theory, and your hermetic view that you're compiling here, where mm-hmm. do you place yourself and the promises extended to believers? to die and then the judgment. So there's a you, you die and the next thing that you do is you go to judgment, either during the lake of fire or you're raised to glory.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: So where do you place yourself in all this? If you think the um, first resurrection's already happened in Revelation 20 that the passage you're quoting from directly tells you that those who take part in the first resurrection rule and reign with him for a thousand years, why would you think you get to rule and reign with him if you miss the first resurrection?
1: There's nothing that says that that's not possible. There's a second resurrection that okay. happens after the deception period, where the dead, but, dead and Hades give up their dead, right. and then they're judged for their works. So there's nothing that says that the well, people that, during the great deception time who are believers will also not be resurrected and be judged alongside. But there's Everyone nothing else. to
3: rule and reign over brother. If the description of revelation 20 verse 15 through 20 of the second great white throne judgment, where the resurrection of the wicked and the righteous occurs, the wicked are thrown like a fire extinguished death and hell mm. and the Hades is sealed up. No more dying, mm-hmm. no more Hades, no more resurrecting. There's only been two great resurrections. Everyone that will be resurrected has been resurrected at this point. This is after the millennial reign, specifically a thousand years after the millennial reign. So even in your theory, we've already missed that too. You've missed the second How, resurrection, also. How's that? According to your theory, you said the, the millennial reign's already come and gone.
1: After the millennial reign, is a reception mm-hmm. period. After the, the, the deception short, period, the after yeah. the deception period, is uh, the resur- another resurrection. Right. And after that resurrection is the great white throne judgment. I'm,
3: okay. But that's what I'm saying, though, that the point of the ruling and reigning with the first resurrection is you have someone to rule and reign over. That is literally the point of having a new priesthood underneath Yeshua. The the idea of a priest in in ancient Israel was someone that knew the law of God and could teach others how to do it. This is what we see as a descriptor of the millennial reign is why the nations stop warring with each other and why they come to the mountain, the house of the Lord to learn towards to stop killing each other. This is why they also have access to free food and water and the medicine from the leaves of the tree of life. So as a priesthood, you then go and get to rule and reign over those nations and teach them Torah and help to settle disputes. They will look to you as rulers.
1: And this has At to the death. second
3: resurrection, everyone that is wicked is already done away with, and everyone that has de- decided to be a sheep and get resurrection unto eternal life has now been resurrected unto eternal life. So there's no one left to rule and reign over. Everyone's righteous now, and you're now just, there is no more ruling and reigning over unrighteous people to teach them right behavior. We all now have the promised incorruptible heart and law of God on our heart. We never will sin again. As so how would, you,
1: how would you describe the, uh, in the last chapter of Revelation, uh, during this time period where the New Jerusalem comes down and, you know, the kingdom is uh, official, God reigning, he is he's the light et cetera, et cetera, that outside the gates, that there are the sorcerers, the wicked.
3: Yeah, that's because I I, I don't place it in the timeline like you do. I, I understand, from my understanding, that Revelation 20 gives us a synopsis of the start of the millennial reign, the end of the millennial reign, the great white throne judgment, but then it backs up and, and focuses in on the description of the city, the bride of the lamb coming down out of heaven. And that's why Revelation 21 and 22 are together. You, you probably know there's no verses and chapters in the ancient Greek. So Correct. in Revelation 21, 22 is the same continued description of the new Jerusalem. So, you know, well, I got these cataclysmic events of eschatology happening for 42 months from chapter four of Revelation leading up to chapter 20. Mm-hmm. And it goes all the way through to the end of the millennial reign. So you get this amazing ramping up of rebelliousness and lawlessness of the nations. You get the Messiah coming back to squash the wicked and create peace on the earth. And then for a short season, uh, Satan's let out to see people, their little mutiny gets squashed. There's still reigning peace on the earth. And then it backs up in Revelation 21 22 to really expound and dig in on some descriptions of, of the new kingdom, of the physical dimensions of it physical height, width, breadth, description stones, you know, water coming out from the throne, leaves on the tree of life, all that good stuff. Mm-hmm. But that's why there's still people outside of it because the purpose of the millennial ring kingdom to come is to save the nations. That is the purpose of the kingdom come down. The nations hope and trust in Yeshua. He's the king of the kingdom, inside the kingdom. This is the this is the promise of the gospel of the kingdom of God. This is why I read that passage from 2nd Ezra, where he's directly talking to the nations, the unbelievers, the heathens, and he tells them, you need to look for your Messiah. He's coming. You will be able to be brought to the heavenly kingdom. So this has always been a part of prophecy. Which is that the nations will put their trust and their hope in Yeshua who reigns from the kingdom. As I read earlier, Matthew 25, 31, Yeshua comes in his glory and the angels with him, and he sits on his throne, and all the nations are gathered to him. Do you think that already happened in eighty seventy? All the nations were gathered to Yeshua's throne in eighty seventy in Antarctica.
1: No, I didn't say that they were all gathered in Antarctica.
3: Well, when did his throne and his seat of authority in the massive city that he lives in and the mountain he's on, when did that move to Antarctica?
1: Well, first of all, it's hypothetical to explain a landmass that is unknown to us. Nobody has explored that area. There there is potentially large landmasses on this earth that are unbeknownst to us, whether you want to call it Antarctica or some other unknown continents around the world. The known world to us is purely based on what we're told. We, it's not com- entirely observable. I'm sure that none of us here could explain all the different continental regions of the earth in great detail and with great confidence. It's just based purely on what we're told. So ignoring the Antarctica thing, because I know you, you're, you're kind of hanging your head on that one thing right now. No,
3: no, I'm, I'm hanging Basically, my head on um, the descriptions that are given to us
1: my basic basically the point that I'm making is that during the time of the great deception of the nations, heard, we are yeah. being deceived as the people in the nations, okay awaiting the uh, deception era to end with Satan or um, God destroying the the armies of Satan towards the end of the great deception era. after okay. which, there will be a resurrection both again okay. of it will be for the wicked for the first time. Cause they never were resurrected right. the first time. And there will yeah, also be I, I new saints that happen, new, new saints that are resurrected people like yes. us today. That okay. are well, I don't agree with that. that, that. Resurrected. So I know you don't, and you also don't yeah. agree with the chronology of the last couple of chapters. So we have a little bit of an interpretive challenge there. We're not really on the same playing field in terms of uh, understanding those, those chapters. So. In
3: Revelation 27 through 10, when Satan's released and he, and he gathers people from Gog to Magog to deceive them and they come like sand on the seashore to attack the beloved city. You think that that has, that we're almost there. Am I am I correct in describing it like that? Almost okay. there, almost there, almost to that little spot. Okay. So when that spot happens, where will Satan gather these people and take them to attack the beloved city? Where's the beloved city now?
1: No idea. Couldn't tell you. Okay. Because I, I nations forward, are the nations that we live in now, like the no,
3: no, 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 the beloved city that the nations no, I know.
1: to attack. Yeah, yeah, I don't know the, what the location.
3: Okay, city. so this is why I would, I would just put forward for <laughs> anyone watching that I believe the beloved city is the New Jerusalem that's being emphatically described in Revelation, as well as the place of peace. That's why it's a beloved city. It's a place that has resources for free for people, food, water, medicine, and it's a place of peace where they learn right behavior. It naturally, the law of God produces love in people's hearts. That's why it's called the Beloved City. Um, And we get emphatically the description of where it is now has yet to descend as well as what it is as a part of resource of the inheritance of the saints, as well as its physical geographical location promised to all the saints and expounded with the GPS location to Abraham, basically. So like that's, that's what I would put forward that it is a literal city that the millennial reign does happen within the new Jerusalem and that that is specifically happening in a specific geographic area of the earth of the plane of the earth. Um, And I, and I, don't think it's a mystical, hidden, unseen place where Yeshua is reigning from. I think he has yet to blow the seventh trumpet and is still in heaven waiting for the Father to say go. Um, is there any questions you had for me about you know some of the things I put forward?
1: I mean, the, the only things that come to mind is basically how you would be able to explain away all of the New Testament quotes and scriptures referring to that generation, referring to the people there that will not taste death as in like they won't die the people that uh will see him including those who pierced him the nearness of it happening like how is all these things explained away for okay. two thousand years
3: there's three things you mentioned i'll gladly address them real quick Yep. so those who would not taste death you're speaking about the second death this is widely known this is why yeshua talks about the first death this is why you know there's in the hebraic understanding of scripture they understood sheol they understood the idea that that was the temporary resting place after your body was extinct and you're waiting for your glorified body so they understood the second death is what we avoid this is why hebrews nine twenty six it's appointed man once to die and then the judgment the judgment is where you face true death you taste death that means you're done that was a hebrew idiom meaning you're done you're, you're extinguished from life you don't, you don't live forever in the lake of fire. You're extinguished. Matthew 10, 28, body and soul are destroyed in the lake of fire. That's the second death, as Revelation 20, verse 19 explains. Second thing, those who are standing there will see him at his return. Yes, because they get resurrected. They'll absolutely see him. That is the story of the resurrection. They're raised from the earth, and they see him coming down the moment they get up out of the ground. This is literally what Paul expounds upon with descriptive detail
1: in 1 Thessalonians
3: 4. And the third thing, what was the third thing you mentioned?
1: Uh, even those who pierced him will see him return.
3: Uh, well, I think I I just try to explain that. Well, we also have in Second Baruch, it talks about those in Sheol will also see the day of the Lord when he comes through the firmament and the, the resurrected are happening because they can all see, I don't know exactly how that looks or what that looks like, but it seems as if everyone that's wicked in the unrighteous side of Sheol will also witness the resurrection and will see him at his coming on this one great day. And it says they lament in their torment and their pain all the more. It doesn't mean physical torment; it's emotional torment in their pain. What all verses the more. is that? In, um, I, I want to say this is books. in second. It's in second Baruch. I want to say it's in chapter 27. I have to go look up the exact. You reference. said
1: Baruch as in like not in the, the canonical. The, the
3: books. priest and scribe of Jeremiah the Baruch was in your Bible up until 1880. So okay. if you want to go to an earlier American Bible, if you believe in that canon, um, it's just the same canon brought over from the 1500 KJV. Mm-hmm. Um, well, we all know
1: that people kind of added and took away books as they saw fit over time, so it's an interesting.
3: Yeah, it's a study it's in itself. Topic. We we do a whole show on it on my channel called Honoring Kings, where we look at the different manuscripts and different canons. Um, so, also, you say I didn't explain the verses that you mentioned about the the time of of the dispersion and Yeshua being taken up and the the judgment on Israel because of how they treated Yeshua. When I emphatically explained it through the prophecies I brought forward that were mentioned in Enoch and re- repeated in the Testament of Levi, as well as the book of Jubilees chapter one. So, uh, you know, I guess, but if you just, dis- if you don't want to accept it, disregard it, I would encourage you brother to look into the history of how we got the scriptures and where they came from. Cause you'll see in the first century AD that rabbis intentionally specifically started telling people they would lose their salvation if they read Enoch Jubilees or the Testament 12 patriarchs. And we have to ask ourselves why, if we want to talk about censorship, Why would the the rabbis do that and tell people you can't read those books when those books emphatically talk about the two dispersions of Israel, as well as the specific timing of the Messiah returning his millennial reign kingdom, his priesthood now and through then, and how the whole story is neatly tied up into a bow. And I would suggest that theories like this come across because we have such a poor understanding of the history of how we got our Bible and where these manuscripts came from. And we're dealing with, with existing censorship, that's been carried over for 1900 years from the same group of rabbinic Pharisees that killed Yeshua, also started telling people which books they could and could not read. So, I agree with you. There is an attempt at revisionist history. I don't agree with you that it's such widespread and that it can't be, we can't ever find a true answer. I just think that it's actually been documented for us what has been censored. We have testimony from the first and second century early church fathers directly calling out the Pharisees of their day trying to censor scripture so they could hide the Messiah. And that's after your timeline of when the millennial reign started. As I read from some of those quotes earlier, they fully believed in the resurrection. I have a quote right here from, um, I have a quote right here from anti-Nicene fathers from Papias. And it says, this is from volume one translated by Alexander Roberts and James Donaldson of the anti-Nicene fathers. So this is pre 325 AD, but post AD 70 Papias says that there will be a millennium after the resurrection from the dead when the personal reign of Christ will be established on the earth. Another Nicene father says emphatically that the inspiration of the book of Revelation is deemed superfluous to add and should not be added another word. And it is blessed by Gregory theologist, Cyril, other early church fathers, and even men of old, because this guy was in the 3rd century AD, refer, referencing people a couple hundred years before him in the 2nd century AD, Men of old, like Papias, Irenaeus, Methodius, and Hippolytus, they all bore satisfactory testimony to the book of Revelation. That means early church fathers, for the 300 years after the event that you claimed began the millennial reign, were still talking about the book of Revelation as if it had not happened yet, because it had not. So that's what I would like to put forward to you for consideration tonight.
0: Okay. So guys, we have successfully got through this portion of the debate. we What we're going to do, we're going to open up to some Q&A. If you are in the chat room and you want to ask a question, put who it's for in caps with a Q in front of it. You may or may not get answered um, because we're not going to have time to do them all. I have questions for both of you guys. So I'm going to start first with Sean. So while I'm asking these questions, uh, make sure that you guys go ahead and start putting those in there. I saw a lot of um questions before I can't find them in the comments because there's too much comments going on in there Matthew 24 34 it tells us that tr- truly I say to you that this generation will not have passed until all these things have taken place Yes. Um, this this is a um, a, a very big, verse for the millennial kingdom has happened preterism um what is your take on this verse
3: in matthew 24 you know me i'm always talking about context right so if we look at matthew 24 verses 1 through 3 we see it says jesus left the temple and was walking away his disciples came up to him to point out buildings do you see all these things he replied truly i tell you not one stone here will be left on another everyone will be thrown down We know that this happened when the Romans invaded in AD 70. Verse three, says, while Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives. Now this is a transition. Like if this watching a movie, we just had a screen fade and there's a transition. So whatever that conversation that was being had in, in verses one and two, we now have a transition in verse three, while sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will these things happen? And there's two questions being asked here. When will these things happen? And when and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So he in verse 2, we have the the AD 70 invasion of the Romans when the actual temple is destroyed and dismantled stone by stone. The disciples come to him privately and say, when will these things happen? And second question, two-part question, Jesus, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Why would they say, I mean, so they knew there was a second coming like I've tried to explain before because they had the prophecies of Enoch and the Testament 12 patriarchs, and also some of the prophecies that were removed in Jeremiah. I go over that in my channel as well. We see them in the Septuagint, but not in the Masoretic rabbi rabbinical text. Um, So we have a two-part conversation, a two-part question to Yeshua. And that's why, in my opinion, the book of Matthew chapter 24 is very confusing to people because they forget there's two questions being asked. And Yeshua addresses both questions, but it's not clearly separated in the text as far as when he starts addressing each question you just kind of have to know the context of each event just to discern how he's he's breaking down both answers to both questions which are two separate events and so this is where this is what i would say to that he's answering a different question he's answering the first question in the passage in part 34 that you mentioned versus the actual coming in the skies to split and open thunder lightning from east to the west coming with the angels of god that's a more day of the Lord forever changing the earth into the age. Uh, answer to that question. Does that make sense?
0: Yep. Thank you so much for that question now uh, or answer. Um, now for Matt, um, since Yeshua, as you, in your presentation, Yeshua has now fulfilled all of the fall feast, probably except for in your stance uh, the great eighth day, right? We haven't got to um, the eternity, right? We haven't We haven't mm-hmm. received um, the great eighth day as right now. Um, so this is a two- part question. Are the fall feast being kept by those that are currently in the kingdom, that those that have their glorified bodies that are with Yeshua right now somewhere uh, in this earth? Um, Are they keeping those feast days? And since uh, for us today, there is no practical application for the fall feasts because they have been fulfilled. We are not heirs to any of those promises that have happened with trumpets all the way through Sukkot. The only promise we have at this point is the great eighth day. Should we or should we not be keeping those feast days? So I know that's a a dual question, but... uh, (laughs) Um, go for
1: it. Yeah, sure. So uh, my current uh, place of, okay, basically kind of just answering in general is that because the fulfillment of those uh, prophetic feasts have already occurred, uh, what we can do today is more of a memorialization of those feasts, just as uh, initially Passover, uh, was a memorialized feast of the events that occurred in Exodus. It was also a prophetic uh, feast of the coming Messiah and his death on the cross. Um, today, I believe that those feasts can be observed not in the way of the Sinai Covenant. As you can read, the instructions of those things are impossible uh, to, to do, and uh, I would argue are dangerous to even try to completely... Uh, Observe, though in a in a memorialized those feast as it relates to the Messiah, in a way to teach Scripture, to teach uh, the Messiah and his works and the things that have happened through biblical history. As far as uh, what the uh, saints are doing in the in the uh, reigning kingdom right now, I wouldn't be able to answer that. <laughs> I'm sorry. <Nope. laughs> Let me let me ask you up with one quick follow-up
0: question. We'll get to sure. some people in there. Um, I understand the point about um memorializing. Um, when we look at the spring feast, uh, they represent everything um, that is vital to our faith the death, the burial, the resurrection of messiah, um, the giving of the Holy Spirit. These are these are things that are are very vital to the to the faith. Um, so they they have direct application to the faith. the very things that have happened within uh, the fall feast, where is the application for memorialization for us that now living past the time of them occurring um, because they're not necessarily vital to our faith at this point. It, the, the blessed hope of his return, um, the first return um, which I've understood the blessed hope is in reference of that first coming and Mm -hmm. not this final coming. That's how I've taken scripture this whole
1: time. Okay. Yeah. So I get, I I think I'm understanding what you're saying. Uh, A timeline are basically the uh, second ratification of the new covenant, which happened identically 40 years like the Sinai covenant. Dual ratification process. With the fall feast, uh, the the wicked are gathered up like grapes and put through the through the wine press, which is the fulfillment of the uh, the harvest, the grapes. And the day of atonement, which is what that was uh, fulfilling, is also the actual bloodshed of the second ratification process of the new covenant, after which at that point it has been fully ratified and it also marks the official ending of the Sinai Covenant. Um, if the millennial reign has not happened yet, the Sinai Covenant still exists in its power two thousand years later and we still haven't fully ratified the new covenant. It's still like waiting thousands of years later for full full ratification. It seems a bit strange. Um so in terms of and in, in terms of memorializing fall feast it's probably not doesn't have the same kind of uh, uh strength as the spring feast as it pertains to the the gospel that there are burial uh, death burial and resurrection as you had pointed out um Still, I find that it has significance as it relates to the overall covenant ratification process. And those that understand this dual ratification process can use the memorialization of uh, these fall feasts way to teach these things as a way to understand uh, the events that have taken place uh, with Messiah's return and how those things played a part in a way to explain scripture um, in in a a physical event-like way, just like you can with the spring feast.
0: Okay. All right. Well, let's go ahead, and we're going to jump into uh, some questions. First one is up uh, for Sean. It's going to be up on the screen. Is the kingdom of the Messiah of this current earth, as he said it or not, as he said it is not or not?
3: In John chapter 18 verse 38 he tells Pilate, my kingdom is not of this earth and yes that's correct that's because it comes down to the earth as i emphatically showed with all the scriptures i presented in my opening statements so there's a transition. Of course, the kingdom is in heaven above, as I mentioned, 2 Second, Second Corinthians 12, 1 through 3. It's considered the paradise of God. This is why Yeshua promises us in Revelation 2, 9 and 10 that those who overcome with him, he allows them to walk in white and he gives them access to the tree of life in the paradise of God. This is also repeated in 2nd Ezra chapter 2, verses 40 through 45. But it doesn't stay there. This is the whole point of it coming down to earth and starting the millennial reign and being a center resource point and focal point of hope for the nations to be drawn to. Where they learn right behavior, they get provision, they can live in peace and repopulate the earth. So the kingdom of Christ that he mentioned in John 18, 38, I believe it's chapter verse 38, uh, is currently in the third layer of the ferment, as mentioned by Paul, and it descends through the ferment. This is why it has to be rolled open like a scroll on the day of the Lord at his return, as mentioned Isaiah 34:4, Revelation, Matthew 24, 30, and 31. In Revelation 6, 9 through 11, the firmament has to open to allow a 1,500 square mile city, four square city to descend down through it and sit down between the Euphrates and the Nile or on top of them. I think it's going to overlap a little bit on those borders, but the point is it's a physical city that comes down out of heaven. So the moment that he's making that statement, the kingdom is not on the earth, but the whole promise of the coming kingdom is that it comes down to the earth. So I, I hope that's a satisfactory answer. Uh, Chris, you're on mute, brother.
0: (laughs) I don't know who this is for. Um, What evidence in Scripture is there for the idea that the millennial reign and the coming of the New Jerusalem are separate events?
1: That's that's for our brother, Matt. Okay. Uh, Based on, so, Sean is of the interpretation that the last few chapters of Revelation are not chronological, but One kind of goes in and zeroes in on a previous chapter. I believe that the chapters 19 through the rest of Revelation uh, are in chronological order. And the millennial reign precedes the great deception, which precedes the great throne judgment, which precedes the holy city, Jerusalem, descending down from heaven. At which point uh, God and uh, Yeshua and the saints will reign forever and ever. Um, Okay.
0: Uh, this one's also for Matt. When and how did the events in Revelation 9 occur in your worldview?
1: That's yeah, a thick question. I'm not going to be able to answer all of it, I'm afraid. The when would be during the seven-year tribulation time period uh, that those events ended up occurring. How specifically each of those metaphorical uh, prophetic language events ended up occurring in great detail, I would not be able to answer that. Okay. Um,
0: I have this really good question that, that we'll save for the end. Um, there's some more for Sean in here. Let me go ahead and grab them. If the mods can make sure that they get in there, because um, I'm losing them because there's so many comments that keep coming in. Um, Watch out for the troll questions. Yeah. Um, did you...
3: Or I should say, some of the very disingenuous questions that aren't sincere.
0: Yes. Um, I'm passing through those. I see them. Um, all right. There's, there's, uh, uh, guys, there's so many. You guys are just loving the chat tonight. Um, okay, here we go. I have not read this. Okay. The Gospel of Nicodemus, among other texts, details the first resurrection where Yeshua went down to Sheol and led all the saints back up or back Adam up to the garden referenced in Peter, fulfilling, I'm sure there's a second part to that question, and of course it's um, right here, continued promise made in the books of Adam and Eve. How do you reconcile that the first resurrection didn't happen?
3: Well, uh, we do have a show I mentioned earlier called Honor of Kings, where we systematically go through some of these books that either didn't make canons or were removed from canons. And some of them were, didn't make the canon because rightly so the people that read them realized how unscriptural they were. Both Nicodemus and the books of Adam and Eve would both qualify. In fact, I can't remember all the different sticking theological points in the book gospel Nicodemus, but the books of Adam and Eve, we found 12 major theological contradictions that do not line up with scripture whatsoever with the book of Adam and Eve, as well as it makes Satan the victim in that narrative. It's actually a really, really deceptive book. I would highly encourage anyone not to read it. um, If you can help it, if you want to read it and you got to test it, we've done an entire series. It's on my channel on Kingdom of Context called Honor of Kings. And we in season three opener, we go over the books of Adam and Eve and break it theologically down to show you all the theological problems with it. Um, but ultimately it's Hebrews 11. If I could give you a very quick verse on how both of those claims in those two false books are easily refuted with the accepting canon that everyone agrees upon, Hebrews 11, 39 and 40. Everyone is resurrected at the same time. So the writer of Hebrews Everyone attests that Hebrews was written after Matthew 27, after Yeshua went down into Sheol and was resurrected, that the writer of Hebrews wrote that approximately 25 to 30 years after Yeshua's death and, ascension, and resurrection and ascension to heaven. And he is still claiming the resurrection has not occurred yet, and when it does, everyone mentioned in Hebrews 11, that's all the way back to Enoch and all the early patriarchs, all the way to the people he's speaking to in that day, will all get resurrected at the same time.
0: And, the, and that is also the, the raising of the just and the unjust. No, that would be
3: the second resurrection at the end of the millennial reign. Okay, great. Yeah, so the first resurrection happens the moment Yeshua returns, and it extends all of all the dead patriarchs and all the ones that are believers that are alive and remain from the day Yeshua returns going all the way back to Adam. But then everyone who lives and dies through the millennial reign, they have a chance to get into their resurrection or they'll take part in the resurrection of the wicked. So it's a, it's a pretty lengthy breakdown. But, yes. Uh, but as far as her question, though, Hebrews 11, 39, and 40 immediately should dispel both of those claims from those books just by itself, standing alone.
0: So, uh, Sean, you can this this one is also for you. If you could uh, give a brief list and a brief moment of the things that have not yet happened. This, um, yeah,
3: this is what I was talking about the trolling questions. I, I'm not sure that she's trolling. <laughs> I'm not sure that she's trolling, but I don't know how else to take this question. Maybe she just stuck. Maybe she just clicked the video on and didn't watch the actual debate because I, I gave a four points of major four qualifiers in my opening statements for, for 30 minutes about why um, we have the millennial reign has not yet happened. So for four big qualifiers, the, res, the worldwide resurrection, of the saints has not happened. We have uh, the nations are not going to the kingdom and leaning on the kingdom for refuge and salvation the occult is still being worshiped. And that's something that Matthew, Matt and I haven't really got to talk about, but the occult is still being worshiped all around the world, not Satan alone, but also the first and second beast. They're a part of the the occult trinity. They're still being worshiped. They are destroyed at the first coming of Yeshua thrown in the lake of fire and destroyed. They're not around when Satan's let out at the end of the, at the end of the millennial reign. So that is a huge contextual qualifier while we are not at the millennial reign yet. Um, And then also lastly, we have the, um, Um, what was, what was my fourth point? (laughs) It's been a, it's been a lengthy bit debate. What was my fourth point? Um, oh, just the, the description itself of the new Jerusalem is just massive. It's just, we would see it from anywhere we are on the earth, 1500 miles tall and four squares of city. Uh, literally the, the descriptions of the river of life that come out of it and refresh the water courses of the world, um, from all the water being polluted and tainted and the events leading up to the day of the Lord that are expounded upon in revelation, um, we have the, the the nations can go to the new Jerusalem um, to get medicine from the trees, from the leaves of the tree of life that are expounded upon in Revelation 22, 4 and 5 and Ezekiel 47, 12. Um, and it is a city that you could see anywhere on the earth, like I showed from Isaiah 33. So there's four, four major qualifiers. I'd encourage uh, our viewer to go check the beginning of this debate.
0: Okay, so here's the question from Amanda. Are we called to be in the same belief in unity according to the Bible? Matt, you can maybe uh, speak on that first.
1: Um, I'm not sure if this is specifically stating if certain doctrines are... uh... (sighs) Uh, Like Sean, my brain is also wearing down. Um, Salvation issues. If that's if that's a question being asked, <clears throat> I believe that there are certain things that are salvation issues. I don't believe that eschatological views are actually a salvation issue. Um, Sean may disagree with that, but
3: no, I I think this is a not an essential issue as far as you know some of the timing of these events. But I think what is an essential issue is understanding that Yeshua is your Messiah and that the promise of the covenant is to resurrect you. Now, if we want to disagree on the timing of that resurrection, I don't think that that's that's a salvational or salvific issue. But um, we we definitely I think Matt and my Matt and me together both uphold that Yeshua is King. He's our Messiah. He's our High Priest of the Covenant. He's the one that the Father gives the authority to resurrect us um, at the at the appointed time. And we may disagree on the appointed time, but um, I think that that is the basics of covenant belief in Yahweh and His Son and what they offer mankind in this creation model.
0: All right. well I believe we we're gonna have one more question and I think it deals with that that one. I'm going to put both of you guys on the spot. Um, if anybody in the chat can find um, Oh, it was a it was amanda it was another Amanda, I believe. Um uh, it's a, it was a it was a good overall question to end this talk and I can't find it. If anybody can see that, post that again. Um, okay, if we don't get that, we'll uh, here it is. Yes, there it is. Got it. Thank you. Karen. Okay. So this is going to be the last question that we're going to take from the chat. Um, here we go. Please explain the specific dangers if your opponent's belief is incorrect.
1: What is the... Matt,
3: oh, your first brother?
1: <clears throat> um, again, if this is basically a salvation question, uh, I, again, I don't believe that it is. Um, if... My position is indeed correct. I would say that the only potential danger is a false replication of a quasi-millennial kingdom being established in Israel uh, with a temple build, with the institution of priests, um, with the sacrificial system uh, starting up again, with some form of Messiah having some kind of control over that. A lot of of current events that are happening seem to be slowly unfolding that uh, story to some degree uh, with the Abrahamic uh, families that have now created a covenant between the three main big religions of Islam, Catholicism, Judaism. Um, So, you know, in theory, the potential error, if my position is correct, is that an unfolding of a uh, establishment of a millennial reign or a a version thereof a false version thereof actually happening in the israel area in jerusalem could lead people to believe something that is not true
3: okay um i I would just say what i said earlier actually which is the idea that if if we think that the millennial reign has already come and gone and, and a, a serious student of the word actually looks into all the scriptures of the millennial reign and starts to look at the the basic, uh, it doesn't take interpretation or eisegesis, it's just reading the passages and they start putting together these these descriptions of the millennial reign and the actual time when Yeshua reigns on the earth, the servant of the Lord that comes to establish peace on the earth. When we see those descriptions, both Old and New Testament, we start putting them together, the average student of scripture would be extremely confused by this preterist slash revisionist history narrative or i should say claim because that's i haven't heard any actual proof tonight i've just heard claims and and a lot of the key points from this theory i have not heard backed up with with you know sufficient evidence for me personally so i would say if someone came along and heard this idea and actually took seriously the descriptions of the Old and New Testament about the reign of Christ, where peace is established on the earth. And then someone tried to come along and said, oh yeah, that already came and went, and now we're here, and and Satan's been let out again, and all this stuff is going on again. And then they went to Revelation 20, verse 7 through 10, and saw literally one to two lines of description about him gathering people in deception to attack the beloved city. Hopefully, they would ask the same questions I did tonight, by saying, where's this beloved city that's supposed to be here at that time? Why, why, what about all these other descriptors about peace on the earth and people not training for war when all over the earth, there's no, everything is but training for war and all over the earth, there's no sign of any of the descriptors that there was ever peace on the earth, not through any archeological evidence or written history of any kind, not through any oral testimony of any family passed down. So it would, unless we believe in a grand conspiracy that CERN is brainwashing everybody with some, some unknown technology we don't have. There are so many ways to indicate that a decent, it doesn't have to be extremely accurate, but that a decently reliable genealogical record has been kept over the past 2000 years of families from different nations and tribes and that all the qualifiers of the new Jerusalem and the kingdom and the millennial reign of Christ and all the benefits the earth receives when he gets here has not happened to have someone come along, and say that it already did happen. You missed the first resurrection. And now you're living in this undefined time that God never really described. And just with a blanket statement said, Oh, all of it fits into this little bitty passage about Satan being let out again, even though the very descriptors of that very passage aren't even available to be viewed and verified today, it would create unbelief. So this is the danger that I think this theory poses is that it ignores the actual written words of scripture And it would stir and create and confuse, um, unstudied believers.
0: And, uh, just to throw this in there, Emily, who, uh, is, uh, also, uh, believes, uh, like Matt, uh, from her standpoint, from their point of view that you will be caught up in the world, how the enemy is constantly wanting believers to fear the end times. Um, guys, there is so much here to digest and go over. Um, uh, you know, maybe this will lead to you guys working together and doing something on your channel, Sean. Uh, but I think everybody enjoyed it. And I think um, as we open up uh, the new show, maybe in 2023, uh, maybe you guys would like to come back for a round two um, and present on some different points of view. Because there's a, there's a lot of different things um, that people could talk about from this. And my last question to you guys would be, who is Nicola... Uh, 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 Nicholas Carpathia in your belief systems. I
2: don't yeah,
0: know. so you guys, you guys talk about eschatology, and yet you don't even know who the Antichrist of the Left Behind series is. I thought he sounded familiar. <laughs> I thought he sounded familiar. <laughs> <laughs> That's right.
3: The guy yeah. who built his uh, he built his his master headquarters on floating liquid. Yes, that it was earthquake proof. I remember yes. that, the description of his lair and everything. Um, that's interesting. Uh, but in general, I just would say that the, the, Revol- the book of Revelation actually tell- answers uh, our, our sister Emily's question about, you know, she claims that this that the, the current view of a, of a coming kingdom and a coming resurrection just causes people to fear about the end times. That's if you're uninformed about the end times, in my opinion, because the book of Revelation itself, which describes all these end time events, also tells you that this is for the perseverance of the saints. He's telling you this information. So you know, what's coming so that, you know, there is light at the end of the tunnel, even when things get bad. And I'm giving this information as a blessing to you, as it says in Revelation 22, but in Revelation 14, it says, this is for the perseverance of the saints. Do not give up, do not give up your faith, even when things get this bad as being described in that book. So I think the father is uh, very respecting, no respecting of person's meaning. He doesn't choose favorites, And he treats all of his believers the same by saying, look, I'm going to be real with you and tell you when bad things are going to happen so that you know how to handle it. When the time comes, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I'm not going to baby you need you to man up. It's going to be bad at times, but Hey, guess what? Light at the end of the tunnel, peace on earth forever. This is the thing I just want to, I don't know if we're getting closing arguments. So I guess that would be my closing argument.
0: Uh, Yeah. Yeah, Any last, any, any last words, Matt, because we are right at 1130. We have less than two minutes left to go. So any last words?
1: Uh, We've exhausted most of the conversation at this point. The the only thing I'll probably close up with is um, in terms of covenant theology, if the millennial kingdom has not happened yet, we would still have a Sinai covenant fading after 2,000 years and a new covenant that has not been fully ratified for 2,000 years and no indication that Either of those things would have taken that much time. In fact, we see scriptures that explain it to be a last hour, quick, near, about to happen, all of those things. So that's it.
0: Well, I can tell you both of you got the the pre-trib rapture people all up in arms. Yeah. And they're all wanting to debate both of you guys. So <clears throat> I'm going to tell everybody in the chat room, uh, everybody, you know. Love your brothers and sisters who don't agree with you. Um, It's okay that we have disagreements. It's okay that we uh, passionately disagree with one another on these things. Do not let it destroy relationships. Don't let it destroy your family. And do not let it destroy one another because the world is watching us. And no matter what, we all still believe the Messiah is still coming, right? Two different perspectives, two different places. He's going to be coming back from... You know, from from Matt's perspective, he's definitely coming back. From Sean's perspective, and so guys, we still need to be ready. Um, I think I think um, I'm gonna reserve all of my rights to my own opinions on another show. But you know what, guys? Thank you so much for being here. It's this has been Take on the World 22 uh, virtual conference, and I want to remind you once again that tomorrow. We have uh, four amazing presentations that did not air over the weekend. And so from now till then, you can catch up on everything you missed. We've got Michael Solomon in Close Cosmology Fellowship. Sean is going to be back. And the guys from SITREP are going to be doing a show. It's going to be an amazing night. It's a bonus night. So make sure you guys do come back. Please subscribe to the channel. It's the only way you can be notified of these presentations that are going to be uh, going on tomorrow. Click the notification button. We don't monetize. We don't do anything. Just come join us and have a good time. And uh, many blessings. Matt, Sean, thank you guys so much for doing this. Matt, I think this was your first debate. Sean, you're seasoned at this. So, Matt, I know it's difficult. And um, kudos to you for, for doing this. And, Sean, as always, thank you so much. You guys have a wonderful night and um, blessings to everybody Watch tonight. Thank you, guys.